You know, I just think it's important when we react to the arts to not just insist on representation without sort of understanding all the nuances that are being presented in these uh, various tropes and, you know, what what needs to be said so it isn't one thing or another in that my statement is, yes, we want good characters represented and I think that's what actually is missing when you have no upstanding, decent people represented from your community or whatever, you know, so obviously this, there's much work to be done. Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. This is part two of our conversation with legendary indie filmmaker Larry Fessenden. If you haven't heard part one, you should probably check it out before you listen to this episode. It will give some of the themes and references context. In this episode, Larry and I delve into his filmography as well as why he has a strong attraction to the mythology of the Wendigo. Why it's important for filmmakers not to be afraid to ask big questions. Making the classic monsters your own and the one and only Cookie Puss. <clears throat> Larry is a brave storyteller, and he doesn't mince words. Expect a frank and open conversation. Without further delay, part two of our sit-down with one of the masters of mythology, Larry Fessenden. When I got COVID um, a year ago, I watched Bill Murray movies. And so Tootsie was on the bill. And then I watched all the making ofs because I was stuck at home and I (laughs) have physical media. So I just gladly just plucked something off the shelf. So I watched the making of, and it's amazing how long that was in production and how much Dustin Hoffman wanted to do it. Uh, And yeah, there's just another thing that's funny in his interviews. He's like, I'm an actor. I want to experience everything. I want to understand what it's like to be a woman uh, you know, to, to breastfeed or whatever. It, it, it's just funny to me because he says everything except anything to do with homosexuality. Yeah. You know, just sort of, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. I want to understand absolutely everything about everything, but yeah. he never mentions that, which is, it's fine, but it's just uh, of his time. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. I remember reading um, last year, the year before an author, I can't remember the name of the author either. I have the book. He put up this huge tome on Brando. And Brando, who was, um, everybody kind of knows this now, who who was quite prone to to playing with both genders um, and, and not that secretive about it either. Um, very openly in an interview, Young in his early on in his career said that playing, he wanted, he was hoping he would get to play a, a great gay role. And mm. I was like, so fascinated by I, I love Brando. I mean, I know people have different opinions about Brando because of how eccentric he became. And But I think if you're just looking at pound for pound, one of the great actors, who's more influential than Marlon Brando? Um, and who has more pounds in the end? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, though, he's an interesting person to study. We talk about empathy. I think Brando had a lot of it. I think he got cuckoo and probably was mentally ill and needed help. But I think, uh, you know, he was a guy that spent... that that 
dedicated his his celebrity to a lot of communities that didn't have a representative. He was working with Absolutely. gay people and with uh, indigenous people and you know all these communities that w- that didn't have a person like that. Brando, those were the communities he connected to, and I think that that's it speaks to his kind of uh, outsider feeling that I think he always had. Um, you know, and, and it's something I think is fascinating about him. I completely agree. And it is funny. He does wear a dress in um, going south maybe or whatever. I just, um, in other words, when he and Nicholson are just having fun making a silly movie, you know, he probably said, oh, I think I'll wear a dress. What do you think? Yeah, this should be fun. Uh, <laughs> well, he got to do it in Reflections in a Golden Eye. Remember that film? Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I love that movie. I think it's vastly <laughs> underrated movie, but uh, John Houston, right? That's who directed that. There's another working. I mean, he he has a voice, but you wouldn't call him an auteur. But I mean, oh, he's made right. an amazing swath of movies, and they deal with masculinity, I suppose. But uh, wonderful, wonderful, yeah, director, huge obviously. jerk of a person. I understand, but uh... yes, but but a <laughs> towering icon of yeah. masculinity and 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 oafishness i think yeah. i mean look at him in chinatown your favorite oh, he's movie such a piece there you of go shit in that movie. yeah yeah he's awesome. ah uh, yeah but what a what an amazing uh performance yeah oh well uh, he's got the voice of you know i remember the rank and bass cartoons chose him for as the voice of gandalf and i was like perfect like i i believe yeah. him as gandalf he's a perfect choice for the also voice. uh more recently it's a movie about a little reptile it's an animated film it's actually a remake of Chinatown. Have you seen it? It's what's it called? It's oh, called reptile. like Genko or Gecko or something. Uh, it's a little animated. Oh, um, like Pixar style. The one that was it the Johnny Depp one? Where he, yeah. 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 I haven't seen it. The, oh, dude, it's Chinatown. You got to see really? it. And the, I didn't know yeah, that. And the, yeah, but it's actually very poignant because it's Chinatown because, of course, it's a story that takes place in the West. And he's like a little. What is he? A gecko? Yeah, I think I think uh, so. The, what's that movie called? <laughs> Ringu or something? Or Rango? Or I highly recommend it. But anyway, you'll appreciate. They have the villain is a guy doing uh, John Houston. Oh, really? Which only only cements the fact that it is clearly uh, he's a chameleon. Yes. Oh, that's right. Oh, it's a very charming movie. That's the one. oh, and it's by somebody strange. Rango. Yeah. How weird. Uh, but it's by uh, like a. Gore you know, Verbinski, the guy who, who made, directed the yeah, ring. Gore Verbinski. <laughs> yeah, who directed the exactly. ring. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I recommend it. You know what I watched the other day? Speaking of Johnny Depp, have you ever seen the the Tim Burton movie Sleepy Hollow? Sure. I love that movie. I We just watched, I watched Very it. Very cool. It's so, um, one. Christopher Walken is yeah, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of Roger Ebert, I love in Roger Ebert's review of Sleepy Hollow, he says, I won't reveal in this review the identity of the actor who plays the headless horseman, but I think we'll agree it couldn't be anyone else. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> but I love that cast, Michael Gambon and like Michael Go, all these great, great, uh, a lot of them hammer guys, Christopher Lee's in there. But yeah. that movie, speaking of artifice, like that, that movie has a world that Burton created where I was like, I, you know, I kind of was like, I would like, I'd like to go to that sleepy hole. It's such a cool atmospheric place. Oh, uh, Tim Burton has made one of my favorite movies. I watch it. Before every production, uh, which is Ed Wood. Oh, what um, a great movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for all the reasons, everything we're talking about, of course, uh, Ed Wood himself, his Martin Landau is incredible. Yeah. There's our Lugosi tribute. Yeah. And uh, the cross-dressing is so wonderful. And um, 
and really poignant. I mean, actually watching it through today's eyes, there's a poignancy to it that I don't even remember from the old days, but uh, uh, Bill Murray's character is fascinating. He wants to transition, but he, he, he goes to Mexico and he comes back and he sort of didn't go through with it. All these, the struggles of people in that period. And of course I love when Johnny Depp says, uh, he takes the girl on a date and he says, I just want to tell you, I wear, you know, Angora sweaters. <laughs> and she says, Oh, do you like men? And he goes, Oh no, I love women. And, you know, it's just so sweet. And it's just so, <laughs> it shows all the different possible yeah. uh, sexual uh, proclivities and interests. It's very warm. Well, I think it's movie. a huge testament to that empathy aspect you're talking because Burton has such empathy for those characters in that film. Absolutely. Yeah. Every one of them. Yeah. And then Thor and the Elvira and all these uh, characters. Uh, and just that whole world of dysfunction and and great camaraderie, you know, that these outsiders in the showbiz felt. It's, it's a wonderful movie. Anyway, it is. Yeah. I, I think Burton was a great auteur of ours for much of his career. I think we can agree that he might have sort of uh, passed his prime, but so be it. Well, you know, I, I, I always think it's Dumbo, for example. I didn't see I Dumbo. Yeah. I didn't see it either. The last movie of his that I really connected to was, I liked things about big fish. Um, sure. That I, you know, visually it was well, beautiful. Albert done. Finney, you can't go wrong. No. And it was so well, Jessica, Jessica Lang was so touching in that performance, but also just that, that, character this this sort of guy that that maybe twists the truth to tell a great story my, it made me think of i had a grandparent that was a lot like that who i adored and so it, that movie felt very um again i i think burden has an empathy for some of his wacko characters going back to things like edward scissorhands you know where you see um that is when he's at his best and the fact that he he saw johnny depp for more than just the uh the cutie pie you yeah know? i mean you watch depp in sleepy hollow it's it's one of my favorite Depp performances because he's hysterically funny, but he's also the most vulnerable kind of um, pathetic leading man. And that's, but you're stuck with him. Like he's afraid of spiders yeah. and he's, he's, you know, he's, he's a total idiot. He'll, he'll, there's a great line where, um, uh, who's the actor he's with? Uh, it's um, the guy who played Palpatine in Star Wars, Ian McDermott. And they're standing mm-hmm. there and he walks over to Ian McDermott. There's the corpses on the ground. He says, did you move the body? McDermott says, yeah. And he says, you must never move the body. And McDermott says, why not? And he goes, because. And he, he has no idea what he's talking about. And he walks off and he's trying to, do, he's just, it's such a great yeah. idiot character. Um, and and Depp, you know, who prior to Burden was kind of leading man guy, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. And here he gets to play something that's nothing to do with what he did. And he really wanted to bust out of that. Oh, yeah. I think too much so. <laughs> like, it got to the point where with Depp, I was like, you know, he's a very good actor. He doesn't necessarily need all this stuff that he's right. gluing on his face. Well, that's with. why I think Ed Wood is also maybe his crowning achievement as well. I think you're probably it's right. Just, yeah. Um, I love him in Donnie Brasco where he has none of that stuff oh, to fall I, back I, on. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, by the way, you know, I just don't want to be on record uh, as the guy that doesn't believe in representation, I wanted to say that, you know, Marley Matlin insisted that the for the f- nice little film called Coda, that they cast deaf actors. And and by having that conviction and her insistence, uh, we discovered uh, this wonderful actor who I think won the Oscar and so on. You know, the yeah. dude who's in that. Uh, so... 
you know, there's, that's a movie I really loved. And uh, it's a very simple, old fashioned, um, uplifting film, but I think it's actually very sweet. And, you know, there's an example where the representation was extremely welcome. And, and yes, we don't need somebody pretending to be deaf. (laughs) Actors who, you know, have something to offer us that we might not have considered. Well, I think that's a prime example too, of like where we've seen so many actors who are not deaf play deaf characters that to actually have the opportunity to see real deaf people portray deaf characters was more interesting than hiring an actor who's not. and I think that's where some, you know, it's funny, but you look at this sort of pendulum shift of, of how this stuff works politically without us getting too much into this. But a lot of my friends who are actors, a lot of them are based in L.A. And um, at the start of our careers, a lot of those guys that that I'm talking about were working and they were doing, you know, indie movies and soaps or whatever they were stuff to pay the bills and you know, then they'd get hired to go off and do a, a, a small part in a Hollywood film or something. And, and all of my buddies that, that were, but they, you know, they were all pretty good looking guys. Primarily, I'm talking about guys that were Caucasian, primarily heterosexual. All of those, a lot of those guys that I know now say to me, I can't get a job because of those traits that got me jobs at the beginning of my career. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, you can get a job now, but you'll be playing a villain. And that's more interesting anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh, nice retort. <laughs> it's like I watch stuff now, and I'm like, all those hunky guys that the Twilight type guys, they're getting to play way more interesting stuff now. They really oughtn't complain about that. You know, what's more fun, playing the bad guy or the hunky leading man? It's way more fun to be the villain. Like that's very, I th- very nice response. Yeah, I mean, but even uh, we mentioned Edward Scissorhands. Look at that poor guy who is the villain there. Where you know the bro villain. Yeah. So. uh there's always been a place for, I guess you'd call them the bully character who is just going to be a white jockey dude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you brought up Stranger Things earlier and it's in the, the most recent season of Stranger Things, the most awful detestable character in it is this handsome young white guy who's kind of like the the football captain. And, and that's who they chose to be like. They're kind of, he brings the community together against the thing. And he's, he's kind of a horrible, almost kind of a Nazi like character. He uses religion as a code to get people to band together to do bad things. And I was like, well, that character has always existed. It's just more prevalent now because I think what people are really talking about is, well, the hero doesn't have to be a hunky Caucasian guy. Now it can be a person of color. It can be a person uh, who has a different background or a different sexual orientation. We're, we're getting all spectrums of that now. Whereas we didn't before. Yeah. Um, I agree. And I, uh, I love that. Although, you know, from my perspective, I always was suspicious of the, for reasons we discussed about no telling, you know, I was suspicious. I am suspicious of the patriarchy and the, you know, the the white led society. So it's funny for me, an old white guy to now have the whole culture policing our content when I'm like, yeah, but I've always been saying this is (laughs) the problem (laughs) meaning, you know, because I recognize it in myself and in, uh, you know, my class of people and so on. Uh, so I was critiquing that all along and always felt like, um, believing in the outsider, which is what monsters represent werewolves and Frankenstein. Those are the sort of the disparaged uh, people, uh, creatures in the world, uh, let alone animals themselves who are 
completely overlooked and mistreated. So whatever, I've always believed in um, defending the outsider. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think there's a reason someone like James Whale was drawn to Frankenstein. You know what I mean? It's, sure. Yeah, of course. He, he found a, a kinship in those characters. And, and I think horror on that level, for me at a young age, when I was closeted and dealing with all the things that came with that at a time where... You know, I'm just old enough that that I didn't grow up at a time where there there was no out gay kids in my high school. It was right. there was no glee, any of the stuff that started to open those doors in the way that that these shows and movies did. But I remember seeing horror movies, and that was where to me horror was the island of misfit toys. You could kind of yeah. as as weird as you wanted to be, you were welcome in the ranks of 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 horror and horror fans and. You know, I, right. I would see these movies like Rocky Horror, which is a prime example of where I was like, oh, you know, this movie's for someone like me. Um, I'll never see this, you know, in in a, in a Hollywood picture. Um, of course, at the same time, you have, you know, which I think is fair. It's funny. I, I read it differently. But, you know, when you see Silence of the Lambs and the cross-dressing guy or whatever his issues are, uh, you know, he's the villain. And people like to say, you see, horror is reactionary. And I, I'm i not going to rebut that to defend certain things, but I do want to say another way to look at that is that we're saying, look what has happened to the uh, oppressed groups. They, they, they go off the fucking rails. Yeah. 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 They go off the rails because they have no expression. They are not welcome yeah. in our society. So you know what? They're going to go underground and cause harm. So I actually think... We need to look at that with with new eyes, or at least with other uh, point of view. How, um, you know, I know it's hurtful because it's not representative of just an average uh, gay person. But the fact is, we have to understand what society does to people. And Larry, it's interesting because I've used this as a prime example. So one of the things I I did a, a film that was very much based on a true story about a, a, a real life serial killer who was one of the few situations where it was an older woman. But I, in, in, oh, pre cool. in preparing for that project, I, I spoke to criminal profilers and some very prominent ones. And I got to, I did a lot of research because I wanted to get past the tropes of serial killer, true crime stuff that we all accept because we've heard them so many times and be like, I was sure. And, and that show, uh, Mindhunter that Fincher did, that's what it was called. Yeah. They really got into some of that, but there was, there was one of the things I learned that was really interesting about serial killers was that sadly, tragically, if you go back throughout the documented history of serial killers, there are a lot of gay men who be, who are serial killers. Uh, the, and the reason is what you're talking about is when you take a community of people, the perfect breeding ground for what makes a lot of serial killers has to do a lot with repression and yeah. being denied your identity and being forced to live in a way. And, and how many gay men have lived that life and that experience? So it's sad to say that it is a byproduct of a society that wouldn't accept people that we get that outcome. And thereby, I'm not saying that that it's not their fault, but it kind of isn't. And uh, I think the Buffalo Bill character is, unfortunately, uh, as much as someone, I understand why people could say this is, this is kind of a, too bad that this is the way that this community is represented at this time. But there's a, a truth to it that is, that is hard to get around when you look at the actual statistics around how many serial killers were people who had sexual identity issues and things. Like, it, it's um, repression breeds that type of thing. Absolutely. And therefore it's a critique of society, not uh, 
a expression of the oppressiveness of society, especially in the hands of Jonathan Demme, I would argue. Yeah. Also, Unspoken, uh, not to overanalyze that movie. I mean, it just came up. But uh, Unspoken is, doesn't it seem like Jodie Foster is a dyke? I mean, I don't know. Uh, so in a weird way, she's our hero. And don't you we think absolutely... even Lecter is a bit foppish? He's he's pretty. Well, that's true. Yes. You know, but doesn't like... he say, I want to have I want to have your friend for dinner? Yeah. I mean, and, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, right. yeah. The point is, I think Demi is no fool. And whatever the source material is what it is. So maybe it's all in there. But, you know, I just think it's important when we react to the arts to not just insist on representation without sort of understanding all the nuances that are being presented in these uh, various tropes. And, you know, what what needs to be said, so it isn't one thing or another in my statement, is, yes, we want good characters represented. And I think that's what actually is missing when you have no upstanding, decent people are represented from your community or whatever, you know? So obviously this, there's much work to be done as Obama would say, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's work to be done and the conversation should be had, but it's not uh, cut and dry. Well, I think, I think where it gets tough for people is in an era where like, I remember, you know, speaking of Obama, like when Obama was president, as a gay person, I started to see, and I'm in Canadian, so I lived in Los Angeles for a few years, and, and that was during the Obama administration. But there was a lot of positivity around what was happening for gay people at that point. And it changed quickly. It was like three steps forward, and all of a sudden it took 10 steps back when the next guy, <laughs> I won't say the name, got into office. And all of a sudden it was like the paradigm shifted so dramatically to this I started, you know, a friend of mine told me this horrible story about how a restaurant that he and his husband used to frequent, uh, year two of the Trump administration, they went into this restaurant and they sat at the table and the manager walked over and said, I have to ask you guys to leave. And I said, why? And he said, because now that, that America represents the way I think, I don't have to let you eat here. And I was like, wow, like what a, what a, jarring, horrible experience that must have been. For, and they, when my friend was telling me the story, he was horrified. But I was like, I don't... It made me angry to hear that. Because it also, to me, it was like, what's happened now is that, that you know, I think it's it's interesting to look at you know, the idea of the way that the, the, the notion of wokeness has been sort of, I think, kind of mugged and, and abused by the Republicans into being something that it wasn't supposed to be. The idea of, of what wokeness was originally before it became a bad word was being aware of people who are different and being accepting and being open. That's all it was. If you look at the origins of what the woke thing was supposed to be, that's what it was. I'm aware, woke, of other people's and other people's ideas. That's all it is. But then you get this pendulum swift so far in the other direction that now I see a lot of censorship coming from the Democrats, you know, and I'm like, this is such an interesting, you know what I mean? It's I, there's people within my own community who are imposing censorship on art because it's, well, you can't say that you mustn't say that you can't talk about that. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's like, who gets to decide what you can and cannot talk about as an artist? Yeah. No, I think there's just no question that we're in a crisis from the left and the right. And that's not because I'm saying it's equivocal. I've, we've been trying to discuss this, throughout our little chat that, um, well, 
Yeah. Well, when we talked about Buffalo Bill and so on, the point is, is that, yes, the society is incredibly harsh and, um, and that's what we need to correct. But to start policing people in the other direction is to, A, it's not practical because then you get the rise of white nationalism because they have so much to bitch and chew on. Uh, but on the same time, you can't cower from the truth if you want to uh, talk about uh, racism. But at the same time, you know, do you have to put forth that everyone uh, who's white is, is bad and, and sinful? Dude, it's so obvious that what we need to do is have a baseline set of values that are so universal that anyone would agree with them. In the same sense uh, that, you know, Martin Luther King said, it's the color of, not the color of your skin, it's the quality of your character. Yeah. we. I think we need to get back to that. I think the left would disagree with that statement now, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. And of course, the right would... Therefore, the right starts quoting Martin Luther King. We're really in trouble because they don't mean <laughs> yeah. it. And they've done everything they can to, this is the, this is the problem. You know, it's just this chess game uh, and none of it is genuine. None of it is in pursuit of uh, sort of a, a, a holistic society, uh, a moral society. And we've lost the ability to talk about morality because that's what white people do. You know, so we're just, while we break down the system, uh, I'm sorry, what are we building it back with? Yeah. This is the problem. Simply your identity, like who you are, uh, is the point of pride and therefore your sense of self is just that you're yourself. That is, is not how you build a society. You need moral guardrails, whatever they are. Now, of course, we have to discuss where that morality comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we have to understand all the nuances, everything that's being discussed is the right, uh, the right discussion. But I sometimes question the, uh, the solutions that are being put forth by, uh, well, by our friends on the left. Yeah. And it's something that for <laughs> me, I think as a, I would, a good chunk of my friends and my close people in my life, my husband is an American. Um, so I, I've always had this connection to, America, even though I'm a Canadian, I live in Canada and, and I lived in America for a few years and I've done a lot of work there. And But but it's interesting to see in the time that I lived in America versus the America I see now, how much changed in 20 years. And uh, um, one of the things that to me kind of, I, I remember thinking, watching a particular politician, Mike Pence, carrying on about something. I had, I, and I he's not a person I'm a fan of um and he was carrying on about uh something to do with women's rights and abortion and stuff like that and and, and you know what women really should have the rights to and i was like i'm so tired of listening to american politicians talk about rights and not ever talking about responsibilities like you know just this 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 ongoing obsession with that, but that's my right to have a gun and it's my right to do this. And it's my, I'm like, okay, fine. I get it. You've got all these rights. What about, let's talk about responsibilities though. Like what, what are the responsibilities that come with having those rights? I appreciate that. And that's what Spider-Man told us. Isn't yeah. that, I mean, I will, you'll rarely see me quoting superhero movies. I don't favor them, but let's face it with, well, I can't even remember it with, uh, great power comes great responsibility. Great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. That's never in the conversation anymore. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And you know what? I'll go so far as to say, I don't think healthcare is a right. You don't have a right to a service when you are born. 
However, <laughs> any self-respecting society should provide health care yeah. for its people. Yeah. And we should build from there. You have very few real rights, in my opinion. I guess you you have the right to your own fucking safety and 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 not to be yeah. judged and abused. But you don't have right to the services that a society provides. However, a society must provide these to be self-respecting or even call itself a a society. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and, and it comes to your point. Uh, so we have responsibilities to each other. Um, and uh, that's, I, I, so I agree this throwing away around and wh- why would you have the right to, to have guns when, you know, you have to get a license to get a car. I mean, it's just, it's all at your convenience. When you look at the statistics around gun violence, to hear people go, well, there's no correlation between those statistics and the availability of weapons. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, look at countries that don't have it and look at the gun violence stats there and you'll see that they're considerably lower. And you're trying to argue guns don't kill people, kill people, kill people. I'm like, yes, they do. People with guns do kill people. Yeah, people with guns. Like it's also uh, but we also have such a broken society based on our our mythologies uh, of machismo and other things yeah. that are yeah. You know, fairly uniquely American. They're really just um, an echo chamber for uh, rampant capitalism. Unfortunately, um, I feel like capitalism and the American mythology found a perfect union, and so we've been pummeled by corporatists, basically. Uh, and it just continues with AI. The conversation about AI is. Uh, you know, oh, it's like HAL 2000, it's going to take over. Well, actually, that's not the problem, but AI is going to serve capitalist uh, requirements and make us all subservient in that way. It's not because there's a malignant force coming from robots. Uh, It's because of the assumptions that have been baked into the AI, which is a creation of humanity. Those assumptions are to make money and therefore corral our data and all this other shit. It's not in the service of something socially beneficial. No, it's, and it, you know, it's funny, like wrapping this back around to your movie, no telling, uh, I watching that movie, what year did you make it? 90, 91, somewhere around there. 1990. Yep. The stuff that you're talking about in that film about farming practices and pesticides and very ahead of your time in that regard, because those, I feel like those topics wouldn't for me at least i didn't start to hear people talk about them until you started to get things like organic food in grocery stores and you know and that came later uh but it's interesting to sort of see in that movie that you started talking about that you know at a point where probably i can't think of another movie at that time that was that was that was interested in those subjects and i well that's because it made no money (laughs) (laughs) i wouldn't recommend anyone making a movie on those subjects even now (laughs) Quite honestly. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, so do you, do you, regret's not the right word. Do you wish that you had started your career with a different film then? No. No. No, of course not. Exactly. Uh, I knew you would say no. (laughs) As, as much as I love horror and movies, I also am obsessed with um, the ideas of how would you build a just society? What would that entail? And so all my films are actually, I think, and this doesn't make me a lofty person. It's just what interests me uh and what feels like 
a more worthwhile pursuit than simply uh, improving my lot as a filmmaker or, for that matter, entertaining people. I, I feel that uh, engaging in debate and conversation is actually the, the spice of life. Better when it's done with a drink in hand, I admit. But uh, the point is, is that this is my instinct. I want to discuss uh, the human condition and uh, what could we do to make things better for ourselves. And within that comes issues of conflict and all the stuff that makes for drama. But um, anyway, so no, I, I mean, you know, I wish I made a better film. That's It's possible to address those issues in a way that would have engaged people perhaps differently. And that's a that's perhaps uh, a worthwhile <laughs> ambition to make films that engage people. But, you know, it's like the Groucho Marx line. I don't know if I want to be part of a society that will have me. Mm. In other words, this society is screwed up. And, um, and so it's very possible that even my best effort isn't going to be fully embraced because I, I have some, I have some questions uh, <laughs> about the way things are done. Yeah. And I'm going to speak my mind and it's maybe not going to be totally entertaining for people. It's going to be a little abrasive, which is one reason I love horror because horror is supposed to be abrasive. So when I come along with my ideas um, and they rub people the wrong way, they may think it's because I'm making horror movies, but it's because I'm actually talking about, some of the really terrible things that we do in our society. You know, I made a movie called The Last Winter. It's about climate change. And people say, oh, you were ahead of your time. In 2009, yeah. <laughs> everyone knew about climate change in the 50s and more specifically in the 80s. Uh, and it was swept under the rug. So I come tottering along in 2009 to make a complaint about climate change it's already too late so i'm hardly first to the party it's so it's such a funny thing too when you think of you know i i i'm amused is not the right word but it's part of the reaction to people who 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 are like climate change deniers where i'm like really like <laughs> you've seen it in your lifetime the way that like I, I i was telling my husband about this he's younger than me and i was saying you know when i grew up there wasn't a single year where we didn't have snow at Christmas. I can't yeah. remember the last time we had snow at Christmas. It's an example yeah. of, of, of all of a sudden, just the, the way the weather was affecting where I live, which is in Ontario, and, and I live right on the lake too, so if it's an even a different kind of thing, where I'm like, the, the winters are like a fraction of what they were when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, you're from fucking Canada. You're supposed to have snow. Yeah, I least. want it. I like snow. I'm not, you know, I'm not. A Me too. People were like, when I lived in LA and, and my friends back home were like, you must love the great weather. I'm like, it's fucking driving me crazy. There's no seasons here. Like, I, yeah, it's so nuts. fucking monotonous. You don't even know where you are in the year. Yeah. And yeah. I got tired of the helicopters. I was like, it's like a fucking apocalypse now in this apartment. Like, it's just. <laughs> Although the truth the is now you can go L.A. for snow. Yeah. Right. So, uh, exactly. There you go. <laughs> the Hollywood sign has <laughs> snow on it. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're ready for you. They, you're welcomed back. No, I'm good. Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't see myself going back to L.A. I, lo I love L.A. for th some things. But I remember the time that I lived there. I went there because I thought, well, if you're a filmmaker, you're supposed to go to L.A. And um, was there for sure. about three years. And, and it was the most uninspired I ever was as an artist was when I was there. Um, yeah. Because it was such a rigmarole rat race of bullshit sort of trotting out 
yourself to execs and managers and agents, uh, you know, and, and sort of, I just, I was like, I just want to make the stuff I want to, I don't want to do all of this. I just don't. Um, I think it's something Romero said to me about how he was, he said, I love the, the business of making films, but I don't think I love the film business. And I was like, I kind of get that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Every time I wake up and think I'm making my little werewolf film almost on my own. And what am I thinking? And look how old I am and nothing's come of it. And then I'm like, you know, but I actually love making this movie. The rest of it is uh, just very anxious making. Yeah. Uh, and it is, did I ever get to my, yeah, I, my Groucho Marx thing, you know, it's like, anyway, of course, this is why I deeply admire people like Scorsese. Uh, Lynch. to some, uh, Lynch. Uh, but I'll even say Guillermo, and I don't love yeah. all his films, but I, I love his career and how passionate he is as a speaker, how he has his fingers in so many different uh, mediums, you know, presenting books of horror and just so well-spoken. And a real advocate, uh, I think, for a lot of filmmakers. He's, he's really exactly. using I mean, yeah. he's just a wonderful career and a spirit and uh and he's younger than me by a couple of days god damn it <laughs> it sucks because i remember george said to me not long before he got sick he's because george guillermo loves george and and was a huge fan of, of george's and george said i have to introduce you to guillermo you'll he'll love you you'll love him you guys he and he'd love to talk to you he loves to do but i i never got the chance because george got sick or whatever and it, one of the things i was like i was bummed but i hope i get to meet him someday because uh because he's such a one, I think he's a brilliantly talented guy. But but when Romero said that, I was like, oh, that would be he's someone that would be oh. really cool to meet. Um, I, I, and, Doug yeah, and I and got then to talk. And Guillermo about him. would love to hear that. Yeah, oh, no doubt. Yeah, it was it was. I guess George and him had, had a correspondence at that point. George is, I, I gotta introduce you to you guys. Would really enjoy each other, but we didn't, never got the chance. I got to talk to Doug about him a bit. Oh well, no doubt. Yeah. I mean. It's, uh, <laughs> I I got to Doug through Guillermo, who I was oh, really? communicating with regularly on um, when I was writing the orphanage, uh, which you were supposed to direct, right? Yeah, and I I wrote it with Guillermo. Right, we had the best time. Um, That's great. I lived in his. I visited his little um, little beautiful home, not his home with his family in it. The, the monster home museum, with his one? monsters in it. Yeah. 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 Uh, which I guess is in Cabinet of Curiosity or whatever it's called, the book, uh, yeah. which he wrote. Um, have you ever seen the Romero film I was involved in? Which one was that? Birth of the Living Dead? No. I highly recommend it. It's really the best last interview of uh, George, and it's like the two hours long. Wow. And then the rest of us chime in. There's a couple of commentators and uh, – uh, it's about Night of the Living Dead. It's a wonderful movie. Yeah, by a filmmaker out. named Rob Coons, and uh, it's it's also I think yes, I, I uh, uh, Romero saw it. He saw it before he passed. Um, but it really is a tribute to what he brings to horror, which is this political aspect. So it contextualizes Night of the Living Dead. Talks about when it was made and the climate in the country. And well, and Dawn so too, for me is so influential. I mean, I think Dawn was such a, I mean, it's powerhouse movie. I, I think of the first time I saw Dawn of the dead, 
Do you know Chris Alexander? He was the editor of Fangoria Magazine for some years. Yeah, I do indeed. Yeah, Chris and I have talked about, Chris is obsessed with that movie, with Dawn of the Dead. And so he and I have talked about that movie a lot. And uh, and I love that that, that movie to me is, um, I've, I've, I've always said that that movie is a horror movie, yes, but it's like four other genres as well. It's, you know, at I some agree, points yeah. it's a, it starts as like a network drama and like a newsroom and the shit's at the fan. And, but it really captures this feeling. If you've ever worked in a newsroom of what that's like when stuff goes crazy and, and then it's an on the road movie and then it's in the shop and there's an action scene, but there's zombies. It's like Romero is, I mean, what an ambitious fucking movie. And, uh, and it's not like he had millions and millions of dollars to make it. It's just such a, a ballsy thing. And, and I love it for its, how brazen it is at asking again, those huge questions that I think even got George got even more confident doing with day, but, but Don again, like this movie about, you know, capitalism and how ahead of he was of, of the curve of where the eighties was going to go. Right. I mean, into this obsession with stuff and needing shit to fill your, the holes in your life. And that's what that whole movie is uh, a lot about. Um, Yeah, of course. Shopping mall. Yeah, that's right. Great. Yeah, there's that great sequence where uh, I think it's Ken Foray's character says, uh, you know, this was an important place in their lives and that's why they come back here. It's just hardwired into them, you know, this place where you should be. Um, Jim Jarmusch made a, a, a comedy or whatever it's called, a satire that really tributes Romero. The horror group, horror fans didn't like it. I think they felt like, why is this indie filmmaker... Uh, man spreading around our business but actually <laughs> i think it's a it's a very is it the one with adam driver and bill murray yeah yeah i've not seen it uh well it's fun i'm in it oh, are you in it yeah with them what's the name of the picture i'm trying to remember the, the title of it. the dead don't die that's right yeah. yeah uh anyway the point is as a romero fan well you may be incensed or you may see how much affection uh Jarmusch has I love Jim Jarmusch, so I'm sure I, Dead yeah. Man is like a, one of my favorites. I, I've seen that. Well, movie. I agree. Speaking of Johnny Depp, yeah, but uh, you you may not favor it. Uh, even my uh, some didn't like it, but I find it extremely charming and also a rant about capitalism and everything. Anyway, he borrows that idea where all the zombies in Jarmusch's film uh, are sort of returning to what they loved and you know as a result you have zombies going coffee and you know it's very <laughs> it's very silly but but fun yeah i i don't think i i i wanted to see it because i love jim jarmusch and and uh and i think i didn't because i just heard so many people that were genre fans go it's not even a horror movie it doesn't you know and i was like oh, well okay. it isn't no it's a it's a tribute a silly tribute to uh even has the same car from Night of the Living Dead. There's a lot of really? inside wow. inside jokes that if you enjoy them and you don't get too possessive, yeah, uh, you can just enjoy them. I'll have coming to, from I'll have a, a hipster. And I like the um, cast. It's a great, I mean, you know, Adam Driver. It's a crazy yeah. cast. Yeah. It's almost distracting how many wonderful people are in it. Yeah. Um, Yourself. Now, listen, you? Kevin. Yes, including me. <laughs> uh, and although I do get to eat cat food on camera, which uh, I thought was quite clever, I did it as an... <laughs> We did like six takes where I was feeding these cats and then I sit down and on the seventh take, I was sort of thinking, well, I mean, we've got this. So I just did that one little move and the boom operator almost dropped the boom and everybody was trying to suppress a laugh. And it's what they, <laughs> it got cut into the movie. So that was fun. Eating cat food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, just licking the spoon, you know, as you do when you feed your cat. <laughs> of course, yeah. So for for Habit, which was your next film, um, you know, I, I'm always fascinated to see in a movie where where you again you're the star of the film, uh, and, and but you're also the director, the producer. I'm assuming, if I remember correctly, you wrote it as well. Like this is a movie where you're wearing like all the hats. Did you find as a, an actor and a film that you're also directing? Um, did you find that, or or have you ever found that, this is the only film I can, that I've that from your from your filmography though where you're the lead? So did you find it split your focus as a filmmaker in some way to 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 have the lead role and direct the film? Was that was that did, was that too complicated? No, there are two answers. One is that I was very close to the character, so I could intuit the character, um, and. The next thing I'll say is that I, I love doing everything in a film. Uh, it's not because I'm an egotist or I think I can do it best, but it's how I relate to the medium sort of in, in a holistic uh, way where I'm sort of in essence part of every decision. Everybody knows who works with me. I'm a pain in the ass with the art department. I'm always moving things and shifting things. And, you know, very often in the case of Habit, I built a lot of the props and the coffins and other things. I just like all the aspects, all the art forms that are required for a movie. So I felt not overwhelmed, but very content to be sort of within the film. And also you can direct other actors when you are the actor, because you could sort of throw a scene or shape it uh, by just some of the things uh, you do yourself. Um, But also of equal importance is to say I had an amazing DP, uh, Frank DeMarco, and a who I could trust. This was before video playback. So we'd do a scene. I'd say, did we get it, Frank? I'm I'm good. Uh anything you want to suggest? And he would he would uh have his observations. So it was a a communal effort. And then uh my producer was um uh, Dayton Taylor. Um and he was also doing the sound and the boom. So it was really the three of us making this film with of course the actress and one or two other people. We had an assistant cameraman uh, to load the film. It was celluloid. So, um, yeah, it was just a very tactile, small thing. You can't make every film that way, but in fact, I'm very grateful to have made Habit that way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people still think it's my best movie. I think it's not because I'm all over it, but because it was so clearly uh, a film that was personal and that that's, you can feel that on screen. And that is, uh, I think, one of the one things that independent film can offer uh, is the unique opportunity to really uh, have a singular vision, yeah, an individual. Whereas, you know, a big film, by definition, is going to start becoming more expansive, which is often a very, very wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's interesting, too, in the film, you know, the, the, the notion of, I find in particular with with filmmakers based in New York that, that, that the city becomes such a big part of the story that they're telling. I mean, certainly with people like Scorsese, that's the case. And, um, and, and, there, and, and also in, in this film, um, what do you think sort of it is about New York though? I, I found a, a study that showed that, um, that New York was voted as the number one city in America that vampires would want to be in. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that's interesting. Uh, do you think that, 
what do you think it is about New York that lends itself so well to, to a vampire story in this in this particular instance? Well, there are a couple of cliches that answer that. One is that it is open until four in the morning. Most cities close down at one or two. Paris does. Uh, Chicago, I believe. Uh, so that it, it is a city that never sleeps. Now, after COVID, that's changed a little bit. Habits slightly altered. But let's just say that the, the New York, especially of our imagination, is always open. And similarly, it is a very diverse town because you're not a driver there uh, as you would be in L.A., we're all in it together. And so you're, it is a melting pot. I guess that's an expression that isn't necessarily popular anymore, but to me, it's really was the goal of our society that we're all um, together unified in a community uh, with different diverse um, ethnicities and sexual proclivities and, and art artists intermingling with uh regular working folk and, you know, all of that. So I think the idea is that you can get lost in New York in a way that um, maybe not as available in other towns. And, you know, it has a great art scene. There's still jazz and different kinds of music and sort of, yeah. So it's just a very dynamic place. And we have lots of rats, which vampires like to <laughs> hang out with rats and, uh, it's a visceral town. I mean, of course, it's been cleaned up in many ways, and it's not quite the New York of Taxi Driver or Habit or, uh, you know, or, or Cassavetes and so on. But it's more. Is it more the New York of Home Alone too? Then at this point, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or Scream. We'll see what Scream does for that's, our fine city. That's yeah. Uh, I'm curious about that too. Uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, obviously, the Joker is a recent example trying to depict a New York-like town uh, with that dystopian vibe that we all like. And obviously Todd Phillips is, is trying to evoke the New York of yesteryear, uh, which he does well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a changed town, but you can see remnants of what it used to be. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting in the film to, to note too, that, uh, of the whole cast, I think the most vibrant, alive-seeming character is the vampire. <laughs> I mean, everybody else in it is in a haze of alcoholism or, or you know, some profound state of denial of whatever's going on in the life. But the vampire is the only one that looks healthy. Um, I thought that was such a unique sort of flip-flop of what we're used to seeing in, in vampire movies. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, Meredith was key to the film, and that's the only movie she ever did, and everybody loves to obsess over that. Uh, I found her in an open casting call. She's exactly what I wanted, a very androgynous, very beautiful um, woman, but as I say, also had just an androgyny that was very appealing and was always the intention for the character. And, um, you know, all the cast, they were performers or intellectuals they weren't all actors but uh it was very fun putting together something that really evoked you know the performance art scene that i knew my character uh aaron uh beale played the uh friend nick and he had a theater company you know i wanted to capture that eccentric community that i grew up with you know friends who were sort of outsiders or aspiring writers or artists who were also 
quite honestly, drinkers and just how drink can often be a substitute for genuine friendship, or at least it becomes the lubricant, the elixir, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the lubricant. And then when you really are in trouble and you have something to reveal to your friend, uh, you realize they're not really there for you. They're not really able to listen. So uh, it's about that form of alienation. And um, that's really what I was trying to capture is the, the loneliness of, well, of life. A lot of people say life in the city, but to me it would, it would work anywhere, but it certainly suited the city of, what is it, a million people, whatever, the, all the cliches about New York. It's interesting, too, because I reading Roger Ebert's review for the film, and he, he talks a lot about the ambiguity of, of whether or not there actually is a vampire in this movie, you know, and, and I don't, this might be one of those things for you as a filmmaker, you're like, I can't answer that for you. But like, I was watching, I was like, for sure, there's a vampire. Like, to me, it was like, I, I, I didn't see it as being that ambiguous. But, but is, is he right? Is, is that the intention in the film that you were behind is like, you wanted to leave the audience with, well, maybe, you know, there isn't actually a vampire at all. Maybe this is, you know, this guy's imposing this idea through his own haze state of being or, or for you, was there always a vampire? Uh, no, what there was for me was, and that's why I loved Ebert's review, because he says it's extremely deliberate ambiguity. Right. Uh, and that's where he was riffing on Lynch. But I was very much trying to almost scene for scene, give you two versions of what was happening. Like, uh, well, it, it, it continues throughout, even to the last shot. I don't know if you noticed, but at once you see her and him on the ground. And then afterwards you just see him. Yes. So was she ever there? Did she turn to mist as you would do if you, you know, landed in the sunlight? All of that's possible. And I'm deliberately using the, uh, the vampire tropes to create that confusion. Um, and my real agenda was to suggest that life is extremely subjective and also the alcohol or any, altered state you can start to lose your grip on what is real not what reality is but what is real and that plays into the idea of subjectivity you know so i'm really saying that we all do live in our own perception bubble uh and that's that's part of life and once again in a way it's a call for empathy mm -hmm. like if you accept that that's true then shouldn't we listen to each other more? Um, so I don't know. All my films are sort of like a plea for some more empathy than we actually have and an, an acknowledgement that existential life is is difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I think transitioning into talking about The Wendigo, which you made in 2001, personally my favorite of your films. I've seen it many times. I adore that this film. Um, I think it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, it's the first one of your films I saw, and I remember it was, one, I think, it, I think it's a wonderfully taught and creepy movie, but, but more to the point, I was so pleased to see a, a thing that always bothered me was that there's this trope in so many films where it was like the city folk versus the hillbillies, and, you know, Sometimes that's played to good effect. Like Deliverance, of course, is an example of where it works well because it's it's so important to the fabric of that movie. But but it's it's a it's a trope that I think is tiresome because it's it's just 
furthering a chasm that I don't think is a good one. Um, yep. And I loved in the Wendigo how it isn't about that. The, 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 the city folk and the country folk don't necessarily understand each other. But the guy that they meet on the street, that on the road when they hit the deer at the beginning, he's a bad guy. But the other guys are just normal dudes and they're not part of it. It's not, it's not a sinister scene. It's only made sinister. Speaking of our pal Ebert again, I love the way he described this through the osmosis of the eyes of this child who sees it and is scared by yep. it. And so we are too. Um, and I, I, was, I love in this film the way that you use the point of view of the little boy. Wonderful little actor too. Um, was that something that was an early kind of quality you wanted from the film from the very get-go was to, to, to see a lot of the film through the eyes of a child? Absolutely. I mean, that was quite literally, it was a recollection of my youth. Uh, we had a little accident like that. There was no hunters involved, but uh, just the idea of being a kid and sort of not understand, you know, we would go away for weekends in my parents' car. And once we had that little accident in a snowy area. So it was a lot about, and I was always afraid of the dark. I was, had a very vivid imagination. I would do things like jump across the, the, the stairway in case some monster was going to grab me. <laughs> All, some of those behavioral things I tried to capture and, you know, checking under the bed before you go to sleep. Um, so I really wanted to evoke that, but on a larger level, I, wanted it to be about why we need mythology, which is quite honestly to say why most people need religion, because the world is so random and frightening that we have to build uh, story structures in which usually good triumphs over evil and there's a, a caring God who's tending to things. So the kid kind of uh, creates this idea of a Wendigo monster, which he hears about, and we don't quite know how, or did he invent it from all the books he's reading? Because he's reading books on mythology and on Native Americans. So did he conjure this whole thing in order to create a sense of order to the random things that are happening? Most specifically, that his father is being threatened by this scary man. And what could be more disorienting than to see your father uh, lose in a battle of machismo. And, you know, to some degree, what's sweet is that the mom comes in and she takes over and she starts bossing everyone around. So, you know, it's also about like masculinity in that regard. And she later says to her husband, you seem to be slightly emasculated out on the road and then they have sex. And, you know, it's just all of those dynamics in a family. Meanwhile, he's obsessed with his corporate job as a photographer and so on. And maybe is he an attentive father? But in the critical moment of the story, which almost brought tears to my eyes when we were filming, I was listening in the earphones. The father describes why there are mythologies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he says it to his kid. And I thought that was a moment in which a good parent passes on some insight about the world to their kid. And then he gets shot and things don't go well. And the movie turns into a tragedy uh, with, but the, the one thing I did want to say about the, and I appreciate very much what you said about the hillbillies or whatever, whatever we call country folk. Mm -hmm. But um, I very much wanted a backstory to Otis played wonderfully by John Sparadakis, where yeah, we see so that. Good, yeah. And, you know, I had a lot of people audition 
and they would all twist their mustache and they'd be like, you know, talking like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. You shitty folk. And Steal he's the like only a guy. Pig, that old thing. Yeah, yeah, all of that, which yeah. is, as you say, serves that movie. But uh, in my film, I wanted to not have sympathy for the sake of sympathy, but have understanding that this guy feels displaced by uh, the city people coming up and that, in fact, his house had been sold by his sister. And, you know, he's becoming uh, agitated by being disrespected. Now, I made that movie in 2000. And I'll be honest, it seemed to me that when we were attacked by the terrorists, that it seemed to have an understanding that, you know, those terrorists didn't come out of nowhere. They were fucking angry at Western countries for coming and setting up shop in the Reagan era. And bin Laden said, it is our needed jihad to uh, dispel you people. We're going to attack you. Now I'm not excusing it, but I'm talking about there's reasons for things that happen in this world. And now we have Trumpism and a great divide in our country. And it's because um, the MAGA people, as we call them, uh, feel disrespected. And this is a long history in our country of disrespecting the uh, rural people and the uh, liberal elites feeling increasingly uh, pleased with themselves and their virtue. And so I was trying to uh, analyze that uh, in my own way, just based on upstate New York uh situation and we have uh for example the city's drinking water is supplied in our town up here and in the uh early part of the 20th century imagine that new york city just came up here and told everybody you're going to have to leave we're going to build a big hole and put our water in it and so there's resentments in this part of new york uh that stretch back a hundred years so I was trying to evoke all that, which while telling a a little story about growing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's something that that you've explored several other times after this film is is the mythology of of the Wendigo, and which is of course a, a indigenous peoples uh, sort of uh, representation. I think of sort of the on some level uh, nature as a personification, a, a nature if it could if it could protect itself almost, you know? Um, but thematically this was the first film where you, where you actually used the Wendigo and, and continued to do so. Why do you think though, that the Wendigo for you is, is a mythology that you've returned to and that, that you've as a filmmaker are really interested in examining. I love the Wendigo for many reasons. First of all, and most fundamentally, I was told the story by a third grade teacher just as a, during story hour, you know, you guys take a 20 minute nap. I'm going to tell you a story. And it was very evocative. And it's very clear that he was telling a version that he must've read in the children's book called uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, which by the way, Guillermo del Toro made a movie of, he didn't include that particular story, but it was based on the Algernon Blackwood. Who's an American ghost story writer, uh, his version of the Wendigo. So anyway, that was my origin. But then when I researched it, because I thought, I want to make a horror movie. I remember that story our teacher told us. I researched it, and it it is thematically everything that I care about. It's about uh, overreach and manifest destiny, and in its biggest sense, the original mythology, as I understand it, I'm just a white guy, uh, is 
was sort of a cautionary tale that if you were to forever find yourself stuck in the cold with your fellow travelers, uh, you are not to eat them uh, <laughs> because then you will be possessed. So it was a cautionary tale by the uh, Native American uh, tribes um, to sort of keep people in line and say, do not succumb to the, other, gre yeah. the greed of the Wendigo. Uh, so it's a it's a malevolent spirit, but as you say, the thing there's so much nuance to it. It's not like, or maybe all of our myths have nuance. Obviously, werewolves and so on. But the thing about the Wendigo, I just love it. It's a it's a very spiritual, strange entity that you can't quite put your finger on. In fact, the fact that I depict it with antlers is somewhat from the way the childhood story was told to me. If you read the Algernon Blackwood, there's some mention of antlers. And yeah, then, I've read the Blackwood think of, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very evocative and also very slippery. You can't quite tell. It's all... It's a bit vaporous um, the way he kind of... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He and doesn't quite nail what, it down. Yeah, and, which is what H.P. Uh, Lovecraft does. He just says, the thing was so scary, you can't <laughs> yeah. believe how It had scary tentacles it and eyes. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but then what's cool is that the Wendigo... Yeah, so as I say, it's it's very specific, you know, try to protect, but, you know, it deals with cannibalism and, and very ferocious, scary things. Um, obviously, being a Canadian, you know of the uh, Wendigo psychosis, and there was a terrible murder on a bus where a man cut off the head of the fellow sitting in front of him with a giant buck knife and then started eating uh, the remnants of the corpse and freaked everybody else out. And his defense was that he was possessed by the Wendigo. So I believe if I could not appropriate your culture, that it's something that Canadians are aware of. <laughs> um, and, um, but I think it also, I use it again in the last winter, much more ob obscurely, but it's also speaks of capitalism being this endlessly greedy, voracious, all consuming, uh, apparatus. And, um, and therefore, it has, I think, great philosophical weight, which I love about it. And the final thing, which I just referenced, is that you don't know what it looks like. Every story tells it differently. I like the deer monster. But Marvel Comics has a Wendigo, and it looks like a Yeti. just right. looks like a big, fat polar bear. Um, and then, of course, I did make the movie with Doug Jones and a great film called Ravenous depicts the Wendigo really as simply insanity where you're just kind of crazed. Isn't and that movie a little gem? I love gem? that too. I love that film. Ravenous is one of the film. great, one of the great films. And it's interesting because I think it's one of the best scores of a movie. Oh, so uh, yeah. It's, it's makes you feel like you're insane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Michael Nyman, but it's a collaboration with another composer. Michael Nyman. I loved from his work uh, with uh, Peter Greenaway back in the day, but then, his work with, uh, I can't remember, forgive me, but uh, that that particular score is, is exceptional. And a great cast, such a good cast in that film. It's funny, there's a part in the, in the Wendigo where uh, the Jake Weber's character, he's really great in the film. Him and Patricia Clarks are so wonderful in the film. Everybody is, the cast is so wonderful. Um, but he starts reciting Stoppy by Woods on a Snowy Evening, the Robert Frost poem. And, and it, that was funny to me because that poem and, and Yeats's The Second Coming are the two kind of lengthier poems that I can recite off the top of my head. And both of them were talked about in your film. I thought that was, that was kind of a, a funny thing. 
Yeah, I use the Yates in in uh, Habit. Yeah, actually. Yeah, uh, and then I love Robert Frost for his simplicity and spareness, and it's very evocative. And I like the silly joke where he goes, "Oh, yeah, the kid's name is Miles." Yeah. So the dad says Miles to go, and yeah. then they go, "Wee." <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I I like that kind of. I guess that's how I communicate with my kid. What are called dad jokes, just dumb observations that give everybody a chuckle. And then you get to say, Oh dad. Yeah. Like, yeah. like when he's at breakfast and he's talking in an Indian accent, just cause the mother says, let's buy some curry. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not supposed to do that, especially now, but it's what dads do. <laughs> totally. I mean, that's the thing that works so well about that is like, even if someone now was to say, Oh, you, you can't do that. It's like, I'm sorry, but like dad, my dad did that kind of thing when I was a kid. Exactly. And, and he probably wasn't being uh, mean. No, he, he wasn't. Was he just, was just being silly. Uh, he was being silly. Yeah. And uh, the irony, quite honestly, is I would probably, I don't know if this is totally true, maybe. We don't need to be overly paranoid, but technically I shouldn't even be making Wendigo movies, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's totally ridiculous. Especially when it yeah. comes to, I think mythologies are, the more that people embrace them and get to employ them and tell their own versions of them, absolutely it's, they are to be shared yeah. they're not this is what i think if there's one theme of this conversation it's let's share more let's not uh crawl into our own little identity hubbles and and then say everybody outside is bad that's not a, a solution yeah. of any kind to anything quite honestly all that ownership is tiresome isn't it like that's mine yeah. mine yeah. mine mine it's like uh, yeah it's um, not cooperative no it's not um and, you know, the Wendigo, I think something you've further explored in the last winter, which was the next film you made, but in a very different way. It's funny, in watching The Last Winter, which I've seen a few times, and I think it's a wonderful film, but I, my husband hadn't seen it, I showed it to him, and he turned to me and said, what do you think the box is about? And I said, well, I think it's, you know, representative sort of Pandora's box. You know, you start fucking around with this stuff, you let out this thing, you know, and um, you know, in the way that they're dicking around dealing with fossil fuels, things they should be that they shouldn't be, and they let out this thing. And he went, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize I, I, that's not how I interpreted it." And I was curious, as again thematically as a filmmaker, is that one of those things that you put in a film and you have an idea of it, but but the audience can decide for them what they want that thing to be, or or do you think there's a set response for you of what that box represents in the film? No, I don't think there. I don't. I can't answer it symbolically. I don't know. What I think is that visually it's a strange artifice of what goes on. And the, 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 the actual truth is that box exists and that thing exists. It's a pipe where they did do some research and then they wouldn't tell anybody what they learned because if they said there's a lot of oil under there, everyone would have gone in. If they said there's no oil in there, then they couldn't go in because they probably believed there was oil somewhere. They just yeah. didn't find it that time. So it's a famous test well from the 80s, and it's unresolved. And there's something just simply enigmatic. Yes. And if anything, though I was never for a moment borrowing this image from Stanley, uh, 
I couldn't help laughing at myself that this was like the obelisk from 2001, which right. I also don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, it's just a thing in a movie that you don't know what the fuck it's there for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, there actually, that thing is so haunting in 2001 and you kind of intuit what it means. Well, I think but, it's that thing too, of what you see this sparse landscape and then there's right. this thing there that shouldn't be there. It doesn't belong that there. the humans put there yeah. and that yeah. is sort of filled with mystery. By definition, that box is covering a mystery. Yeah. Which so it seems just exactly the thing of a ghost story. Just this thing. Like, what the fuck? And the guy just stares at it. I don't suggest the Wendigos live under there or some weird <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. Uh, so I think the, you know, the beauty of... Uh, some things, and once again, in horror, stuff doesn't need an explanation because, you know, what's scary? Not knowing what the hell things are. And, yeah. you know, everything that scares you is because you don't quite understand it. So I'm certainly not going to explain what that box is, except that it's right in the beginning of the movie. Patricia Clarkson, in a uncredited cameo, plays the announcer in the video that you see. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't sort know of, that. yeah. And listen to it again, and you're like, oh, my God, it's Patty from <laughs> Wendigo. She's so great. Um, she's fantastic. Uh, and and listen to her because she's like, North Industries yeah. bringing you, you know, it's just very, very excited. Um, anyway, you know, we see the box in that. It's actual footage of the real one. So there you go. <laughs> and and for, with the last winter, you know, after you had made a movie called The Wendigo, what made you want to keep exploring that mythology of the, of the Wendigo and, 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 and return to it again for this film? So the the real origin of The Last Winter and the reason it's a Wendigo story is that uh, we were shooting Wendigo uh, in the fall of the uh, winter of 2000 in February. And we had beautiful snow in some of our early scenes. But the end was supposed to be uh, in the woods with uh, the Wendigo chasing Otis. And I wanted beautiful white snow on the ground and then these vertical trees like a uh, like a Kurosawa movie, just something very graphic. Um, and uh, there was no snow. It melted. And if you watch the film now with those disappointments, you'll see it's very sort of muddy, brown, dark uh, uh, finale. And I was heartbroken. So I said, I'm going to film somewhere where they is guaranteed to have snow. <laughs> uh, and when I was young, I had gone to Alaska and I always had a fondness for it. And more importantly, there is this huge political debate, which continues to crop up every now and again about drilling for oil in Anwar, which is the vast area of Alaska, the northernmost uh, area uh, where environmentalists just want to protect it to save the habitat of the caribou, but also I think spiritually to say, is there any place we can leave alone? And all the oil companies want to come in and poke and prod and they will make uh, havoc of the area. I mean, yes, of course they can do it more and more technology uh, makes it less and less disruptive, but it's also just conceptually, do we really have to do that when we're having climate change and so on? All those themes came together and I thought I could at least go somewhere that has snow and I can finally make a snow movie the way I want to. So that was actually the origin and it was considered very literally a sequel to Wendigo. And as I've said, Wendigo is a very personal story uh, it's about mythologies, but it's about a child coming of age. And then I wanted to sort of build it into a societal use of the Wendigo story. So now we're saying, 
what if humanity destroys and consumes its only home, which is Earth? Uh, what does that look like? A lot of people call it a revenge of nature movie because the Wendigos appear to come and start killing people, but I don't see it that way. I see it as uh, the madness of a certain kind of a guilt, which comes from self-betrayal. These are the themes that I really care about. Um, you see it in Habit. That's about an alcoholic. He's killing himself deliberately, uh, and he's betraying himself. And in The Last Winter, I propose that humanity has betrayed itself and destroyed the only home it has. And that's why the theme in the movie is you can never go home if you've destroyed it. Uh, most of the great novels end with the hero, you know, Homer, uh, going home. Sort of it's the reset, you know, and then the sun will rise on another day and all of this glorious stuff, which has been time immemorial in our works of, of fiction and the redemptiveness. And what if we've destroyed our home? And that's what we've done. We are living it now. We can't trust the weather. Um, there is nowhere to hide. So that's what the last winter is about. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to think when I'm watching that movie of um, Carpenter's The Thing, which, you know, is such a um, seminal movie to me. Um, uh, was, that, was, that a, was that a movie that was an influence to you for this film? Uh, well, first of all, I absolutely love that film. I always did. And one little side note, which is just, so the monsters were designed by Mike Plug. Now we all know the, my cats are slightly going crazy. We <laughs> all know, um, we all know that uh, the, the makeup artist who created the creatures, but. Um, Robotine, but, yeah. Yes. But Mike Plug uh, was employed to do some uh, concept sketches. And Michael Plug, Mike Plug, is the artist of Werewolf by Night, which is the most uh, influential comic book on my life. Uh, it was a Marvel comic, ironically. Marvel had a, uh, a series of horror stories, uh, Frankenstein, uh, Tomb of Dracula, and Werewolf by Night. And my werewolf is derived from that comic book. Uh, when I say my werewolf, I made one recently. <laughs> Still working Yeah, on that's... That's your most recent film, yeah. Yes. Did you see the, the? Didn't they just do a Werewolf by Night film for? for, for you know, uh, not not out of spite. I didn't see it. Uh, it, yeah. In fact, thank you. I might watch it tonight. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I think they. I think took, it was quite. I think it was quite well liked. I think people. It was well liked. I actually, yeah. the irony though, if I could just be an old curmudgeon, is I think they took the things that I least liked about the comic, which is where it becomes sort of a carnival fantasy sort of story. Whereas what I liked was the sort of gritty reality of waking up. Uh, I think it's on his 18th birthday and he's a werewolf and sort of how he has to deal with it. But, you know, anyway, uh, I, I do believe it was well-intentioned uh, little adaptation. I think it's an hour. It's a strange little thing that came out. Yeah, it's like a TV Halloween. movie kind of a thing. And it's black and white. I mean, you know, I, I, th I think it leans heavily into tributing the universal monster. So to everybody's mind, that's what I would want. But I'm not really saying we should be making movies like they did in the 30s. That's the irony. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm saying that inspired me. And then I actually deliberately wanted to get away from the artifice of those movies and make something felt more uh, immediate. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so the thing was very important to me. I don't recall like obsessing over it and watching it and trying to, you know, 
understand it. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, um, even though my films are somewhat derivative, because by definition, they're about things we've already seen, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman. Uh, I, I don't like endless, well, I don't build a movie through references. When I'm on set, as people yeah. like to call them for, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I really don't favor that at all. In fact, I read nonfiction. I do almost everything except think about movies. And even with my DP, I rarely say, let's watch these seven movies. Yeah. Um, right. Having said that, when I'm on set, I'll say, we're going to do the Hitchcock shot because I know that this is straight out of a movie. And I know that there's so many films that are just in my DNA that I sort of want to reference them and tribute them as I speak. But uh, yeah. So yeah, if you can figure that out. Sorry, my camera's acting weird. It's that thing that's funny too. I think, you know, I've, I talk to a lot of horror fans when I go to conventions and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's always, what's, you know, what's the horror movie that influenced you most? And it's funny how, because I've talked to so many different directors and filmmakers through the podcast and, and through my work and stuff, but so much of the time, I think, what fans don't know about their favorite horror maker, favorite horror filmmakers is that a lot of their influencers are not horror films. Well, it's exactly. like Carpenter. So many of his influences are guys like movies like real Bravo and Howard Hawks. And you know, it, it's, it's your reference point doesn't have to be within the genre. And I think uh, fans don't always realize that. No, that's extremely important. And you know, I, I love to say, people say, what are your favorite movies? And I like saying love actually just to freak people out. You know, in other words, uh, I, I, I like all kinds of things. I love Fred Astaire. I actually have referenced Fred already, but uh, you know, I grew up loving James Cagney. This was not uh, uh, at its base point. You know, I like musicals. I like uh, just unexpected things, I suppose. Not, not the stuff of horror. Yeah, it's, I mean, in the last winter, too, I, I was so fascinated by, and this is something that I think is, echoes throughout almost all of your, except maybe Beneath, which deals a little bit more in archetypal characters, but but watching the last winter, like Perlman's character is not particularly likable, but he's not, he's not any one thing. He's not, but he's not a movie hero. And there is, the movie doesn't really have that kind of character and it doesn't deal in tropes and archetypal characters. And I, I, it doesn't seem to me that you're particularly interested in characters that fulfill horror tropes or any tropes for that matter. Is that, do you come from a place with the thinking on that being that, that if the horror is more grounded in characters that are relatable because they don't feel tropey, they feel complex and dynamic like people usually do, that it makes the horror or the fantastic elements more relatable? Well, that's very much the agenda. I'm trying to make what would be called naturalistic films uh, and then have the horror element creep in. And I always say when I approach a film, what would it really be like? What would it be like to meet a vampire? What would it be like to be, you know, in a remote area and have something go terribly wrong and you're trying to understand what it is and you wouldn't. I mean, in Last Winter, there's many explanations speaking back to Roger Ebert and my love of ambiguity. Uh, they say, is it sour gas that's coming out of the ground? Are right. we, done, you know, are we having a guilt trip? Is it uh, isolation? All the usual uh, ideas. And so the idea is we can't really, first of all, uh, life and reality is very hard to define. That's certainly a position I have. And then, um, yeah, and and I like characters that... Um, that are nuanced. I don't think villains are always villainous. In fact, I have a terrible problem uh, trying to understand 
bad actors, as it were. I mean, even Trump, I've found moments where I could see a desperate, horribly broken man. You know, I think his effect on the world is uh, egregious and he should just shut the fuck up and maybe <laughs> fall, you know, please fall down a flight of stairs, big fat man. But at the same time, I, you know, I think you, you are shutting yourself down if you simply judge someone and then put them in a box of they are evil. Well, even evil comes from a place. Everybody loves to say Hitler was a failed uh, painter. Now, in the tweeting generation, I'll be canceled now for defending Hitler. No, I'm just saying <laughs> life has, uh, you know, you have to understand. Let's put it this way. You must understand your enemies uh, for one thing. And you must understand the cancers that are affecting our society. So all I'm getting at is I wanted Perlman precisely because he's the most charming blowhard that I could have thought of. I mean, I wanted Nick Nolte originally, but you get the gist. I knew that Perlman would deliver a sympathetic um, blowhard, just as James Legros, not not as a person, but the character of Hoffman, I think his name is, he's a little bit smug, and that's the point. He may be right about the environment and protecting the environment, but he's a little bit smug, and so you realize... Oh, we we like that guy because he's kind of on the right side, but he's a little problematic. And we love that guy, but he's terrible what he's doing and so on and so on. And I would argue yeah. the woman, Connie Britton, the wonderful Connie Wonderful. Britton, yeah. Very good. Well, idea. she's sort of the voice of the movie. She's sort of in between, but yeah. she's a little slippery because she kind of trying to play it both ways. So that's a problem in itself. It's kind of like you got to commit. Something, Which I mean, honey. these these characters all exist in a gray zone, which is where most people live. They're not they're they're not right. you know the the what is it the red clown and the white clown or whatever. Like there, there's not there's not that whole thing of like you need this character to play off this kind of character. It's just like what if you take and you talked about yeah. a melting pot. This movie is very much a melting pot of different types of people that really exist. That that right. you know I think when you're watching the movie, you can think to yourself, I've met people like this. I know someone yeah. like that, and and. You know, when I'm watching like a, a Friday the 13th film, I don't know anyone like those people because they're, they're just archetypes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, this is you the know? joy, uh, trying to bring a little realism and nuance to the horror genre. And, you know, believe me, as a result, uh, not everybody gets off on my films and I get that. That's fine. Um, but that's what interests me. Yeah. And they're probably not going to be listening to this anyway. So fuck them. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> One thing I was thinking while I was watching it, too, is that part where Zach Guilford has to strip down and go outside. He didn't actually have to go outside like that, did he? What a funny question. Because, <laughs> no, no, what's funny is that I don't, what is the answer? Um, no, he did. Absolutely. Did no, he really? I, I thought I he must have movies. cheated it or, or did no. something to, to keep, not the, make him have to do that. <laughs> the, the reason I'm confused is that one of the the interior we shot in Reykjavik, which is a city, and we go home to our cozy little beds in the town. Uh, whereas the exteriors we shot up in the freaking middle of nowhere. It was actually yeah. almost almost to the point of being scary how isolated we were. Um, so that was the one the room that he walks through the boot room to get outside was the one thing we built twice so yeah the night when he's outside he really went out and you know it was a funny oh, um i always ask 
there's always male nudity in my movies because I'm much easier to ask the boys to do stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was a big, um, it was a big occasion because, you know, he could have gotten cold or whatever. He did get cold. So we, we took care of him. Uh, but I like, I like the adventure of filmmaking. You know, we've talked about a lot of filmmakers, but not Herzog. And I love yeah. Werner because Werner. he's insane and he always, you know, film or death, you must, you know, hang <laughs> out of the window and uh, your life must be in danger. So I always challenge. Yeah, that's why you uh, work with Kinski. People. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, <laughs> yes, uh, Zach got uh, naked and cold. Well, I, I, I was I, Zach Gilford is a wonderful actor, and he's gone on to do many great things since. But it, you know, was this? I think I read. It, I wanted to confirm this. This was his first film. Yeah. There you go. He's. I mean, he, I, I think he's he's such a, a a talented actor, and he was a friend of mine directed a film he was in, and I, um, uh, and I, I just I think he's so accessible, uh, and he's yeah. such an interesting kind of actor because he's he he so often feels like a, just a real guy to me. He's not, yeah. you know, there's no posturing. There's it's, it, it, so it's, it's pretty cool that, um, you know, all the great things he's done since that, that this was the starting point. And, you know, I cast him because he literally was a counselor in Alaska and he apparently stared down a bear to protect his little flock of camping kids or whatever. I mean, he was, as you say, he was a real person first. And I think that's why he was able to do the football show um, so successfully and, and, you know, make his way through showbiz starting with that. Um, and that's because Connie liked him and she brought him down for Saturday Night Lights. So oh, really? It's called Friday Night Friday Night Lights. Night Lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought uh, about that because when I was watching, I was like, oh, funny, they're both in this. And I, I wondered if that if it was a coincidence that they both ended up. Not really. Lights. No, they they knew each other on our set, and then she said, "You should come play a football kid." That's awesome. Um, so let's, the next thing you did was Fear Itself, Skin and Bones, with with the great Doug Jones, and and uh, furthering this exploration of the Wendigo, but but much more like Ravenous this time, and that it's a possession yep. sort of story. And and I was curious watching the film. Um, you know. I, that Mick Garris, who had done the Masters of Horror series prior to this, had now sort of switched the concept over to network television. Uh, was there anything that that you had wanted to do with the story that you weren't able to do because of those restrictions of being on network television? No. <laughs> uh, let me tell you a couple of things that are funny. So they, uh, Ron Perlman, I think, knew Mick Garris, and he said, you should check out this kid, Larry Pheasant, and he just made Last Winter, and he's a cool guy, which was lovely. Thank you, Ron. Uh, so... They called me and they were all a little suspicious because I was just a New York indie guy, not a real filmmaker. And uh, they said, what do you got? And I pitched them a werewolf story. They said, well, actually, to be honest, we already have scripts. Uh, so we'd rather just offer you this one. And I said, OK, well, what is it? And it was a Wendigo story. And I said, guys, you're going to make me look like a fucking maniac because I've already <laughs> made two Wendigo movies. Uh, but I read it uh, by uh, uh, Drew McWeeny and, oh, I'm terrible with names. Forgive me, guys. Love you guys. Uh, but uh, anyway, they, uh, Scott Swan and Drew McWeeny. That sounds anyway, right. Yeah, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, they, they were, um, I they'd made, a I thought, a really great script. Now, I do tend to tinker to make something my own and also mostly just my processes so I can understand it. 
And they let me do a little tiny tweaking here and there, but basically it's their story. One thing that's funny is there's, um, of course, there's always the Native American elder who knows best. And that's a cliche, I know, but I believe it, actually. I've always been entranced by uh, Native thinking, and it's embedded in the environmental movement. You know, seventh generation makes a wonderful toilet paper. Well, there, the word seventh generation is you have to make a decision based on if it'll be viable seven generations from now. Nothing that we do with capitalism, by the way. We're talking about the next quarter. So there's an elder in that. And what's funny is that the language is the same as the elder in Wendigo, uh, the elder in Fear Itself, and I'll take it further, the elder that speaks in uh, Until Dawn. (laughs) It's always my writing because everybody comes to that part and they go, Oh God, Larry, you fucking, uh, you work it out. So I'm always like, well, <laughs> the wind you go, you can fly at you like a sudden storm and on I go with my thing. But, uh, <laughs> so it would be fun to do a super cut of all my, uh, when you go explaining when they're, when to go explaining. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, uh, I didn't feel compromised too much. Like, I don't know what more gore I would have. Some of the things I think are effective in my telling is, uh, Back to just filmmaking. Uh, yeah. Like one of my favorite shots, I can't even remember what I'm trying to tell you, but it's something like you start on the guy, he gives her the the cleaver, you pull back. I don't know. It's just a wonner. And and then when they slam when he's the, try, I think you're telling me when he's trying to get her to cut up the brother. The, the cut, husband, well, her, the guy her husband, yeah, yeah. yeah. His brother, yeah. And yeah. it's just, a, it's one shot. But, you know, the point is if I had all the effects work in the world, I wouldn't have done it any differently. It's off camera, yeah. but you hear it and you see her. She's utterly appalled. She's about to cut her own husband into little pieces because this maniac is telling her to. And so what I'm saying is I no more money time or effects would I have wanted to do it any differently. It's so. funny because, you know, the, the whole premise of course of, of the fear itself thing was, was different genre filmmakers, each tackling a different story. And, 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 you know, everybody's going to have a different approach to that and different outcomes or results. But I thought skin and bones was the scariest segment. It, and, and, and it isn't particularly gory. Like you're saying, it's just, it's all atmosphere and, you know, yeah. you had this in the Wendigo in the last winter as well, that chilly, winter, desolate quality that, that I, I think the scariest horror movies for some reason for me are always in the winter. Like The Shining is an example of this. The Thing sure. is an example of this. Yeah. Um, winter's just scarier than summer. Summer's, you know. Sure. No, I, I agree. <laughs> and um, I really appreciate you saying that because I think one of the unspoken realities is that my movies aren't particularly scary. You know, I think they're filled with a low level of dread or just a sense of despair, melancholy. Those aren't the words we associate with, you know, horror itself. But I feel fear itself, there's something uh, that is genuinely unsettling about it. And it's terrifying. I, I think it's really the idea of Doug Jones because he's very still in his performance. Yeah. And we worked a lot. You know, I am a very... Uh, because I grew up on like the comic books, werewolf by night, I have a very sort of angular view of how monsters should behave and act. And so I must say with Doug Jones, I finally had a performer who 
he and I would just get into fits of laughter because I would say, well, Doug, you want to go like this? And he'd go, you mean like this? And we go, oh my God, it's perfect. Because we really could speak that language of this kind of angular sort of almost, you keep using the word architectural. Uh, you're, you're making very graphic um expressions well, he, with your body in order to convey, you know, these monster characters and so on. He, he's very, I, I always think of his performance, and I said this to Doug when he was on the show, mm-hmm. and what a incredibly talented man and a lovely man. You couldn't meet a nicer person. He's such a sweet, when I first met him, because I got to do his interview in person because he was in Toronto. So oh, I got nice. to sit down in a studio and record it. And when I, this big hug, and and he, he, he kept calling me, uh, what was he kept calling me? Um, Precious Kevin. Precious mm-hmm. Kevin, what? And it, it was—he's such a lovely person. But we were—he always says, to, "There's love there." You yeah, know, when, he's you know. such a yeah, yeah. big-hearted, fe- lovely fellow. And um, and we were talking about skin and bones, and I said, you know, the character to me was very spider-like. And he said, "Yes, yeah, yeah." And I said, because with a spider, uh, they're always seem prone to me. You never see like a spider like chilling and hanging out. A spider's mm-hmm. always like. Yeah, ready to go, like just prone, right? And and every time we see Doug in that, he's ready yeah. to go. He's prone, right? And uh, and I, but Doug was saying that the originally in the script that, that it was all played fairly straight ahead, and that when you and him got into it, you know, you start to have a little more fun with it. You know, here's a carrot and an onion, like all this kind of stuff. Oh yeah, and, yeah. You know, then make it almost. Doug said the idea was you know, guys started joking around. It was more like a cooking show at that point. Yeah. Um, of him pulling up these ingredients and uh, and Doug actually did it on the show. It's very funny in the episode. Oh, um, how sweet! I'll look it up. <laughs> yeah, he does the whole. Well, thing. Here's a carrot and an onion, like a. Yeah, I mean, I definitely for some reason that just seemed absolutely the way to do it, and it wasn't in pursuit of comedy. It was the way he was torturing her. Uh, you know, just more psychological by freaking her out by being sort of sarcastic and uh, just delighting in the anguish he was causing. So, yeah, but it's, uh, it's nice to hear him recalling that as well. Yeah. It's, it's one of those moments in the, in the film. I mean, it's, it's an hour long, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. um, Where I'm like, it's so hard to do something that's comedic and scary at the same time. You can have comedy and horror in the same movie, but not usually at the same time. But <laughs> that this story, like there's parts that made me smile and giggle to myself because they're so insane. But the yeah. movie never stopped being scary. And so I, I credit that that's a very difficult thing to do. And I, and I applaud you for pulling it off. <laughs> well, thanks. And it is worth just referencing uh, Ravenous one more time. Once again, I wasn't citing the movie. You know, I have the lucky fact that i can't remember movies even though i i love them uh so i i couldn't there's no one specific thing but ravenous makes you feel like you're insane in sort of that yeah. same kind of laughing way it's just like yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. uh yeah totally it's, it's an interesting emotion to try to capture i think doug did it uh, and it's also the music there i you know watching it again the music really it's just such a it's a the movie just ratchets tension and keeps going and there isn't a break you know it just it goes yeah. and then it's over it doesn't a lot of movies have a you know the, the idea that you have to kind of give the audience a break to comp but when you only have an hour like i think it's okay to not take your foot off the gas and this movie kind of does that and uh um cool. i've watched it a bunch of times uh it's something <laughs> i kind of i i had this crappy like dvd recording of it that i burned myself when it was on television and i would i, I put it on around halloween and stuff and, and oh that's it nice 
Yeah, I wish awesome. I wish that Lionsgate would do. Well, this is typical of me. I just love physical media, and I wish they'd do a proper presentation. But the the entire show seemed to be somewhat maligned. In fact, because yeah. I worked quickly, I got mine on, and then the channel had the Olympics, and they never continued. So a lot of the filmmakers finished their work, but weren't broadcast. So I was very lucky. And it's a lesson to you kids. Do your work <laughs> and do it quickly because you might get on television. And otherwise, if you're slow, you won't get on the television. You're just on the box set at that point. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which was like a skeleton on a grave. I remember that. Yeah, it's cool. But I mean, I could use just a nice presentation instead of that. I mean, I guess it's kind of novel. Well, d- DVDs look like shit on my screen now because I have a 4K television and DVD is like, what is it, 680 or whatever? It's like, oh, it you're right. Doesn't... It wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't even be a Blu ray. Yeah, you're right. No, it's a, it's not on Blu ray, which is the thing that sucks because I'm sure you shot it in, in, in 1080p or something, I'm guessing. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your next Great film, Beneath. By the way, you were talking, it's funny, uh, you know, three hours ago when we were chatting about uh, format. Uh, what I loved about my crew on um, Skin and Bones was they were like TV guys and they worked so Fast, quickly. Right? Yeah. And they also would do shots that I was too shy to even ask for because I was like, oh, God, that'll take forever. Like an early shot, uh, you see the two uh, characters and they're looking out the window and they, they say, oh, here he comes. He's finally made it back. And I wanted it to be a wonder to go outside and see all the way through the window down to there, shift focus, and, you know, have it be a connective tissue, not just an edit. And I think I vaguely muttered that I wish I could do that, but I'm not going to trouble you guys. And they said, what are you yeah. talking about? Let's yeah. do it. And it was, it's so exciting. They were great. And they were really snooty at first. They obviously thought, who's this kid? Uh, but uh, we ended up. Which is so funny to me that, that, that because you, I mean, it's not like you hadn't sort of uh, kind of earned your stripes by that. By this point, you had done all kinds of great films already. Oh, that's weird. Well, you so you'd think, you know, the fact is I got one day less than every other filmmaker because really? I was an unknown. And it's like, well, OK, I guess they had I'll Lucky McKee on the first looks. season of Masters of Horror. He'd done probably less work than you had. Yeah, Lucky's pretty cool. I don't mind that. But yeah, Lucky's wonderful. He's a great yeah. guy. I mean, I don't mind the challenge, but it is interesting. The very end of the movie, which is where all the crazy stuff is happening with the kids and this and that and the teeth. Doug had the eye things in. It was very uh, stressful. And we had the gun gag and this and that and picking up the child. All this stuff that you see at the end, that should have been two days. We did all that in a day. And that's the one time I could have used the one day they took away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Bastards. Um, <laughs> Bastards. So your, next, <laughs> your next film was Beneath in 2013. And I, this must, I got to tell you, the, the thing I thought 20 minutes into this movie and it stayed in my head was the raft segment from Creepshow 2. Just, yeah. have you seen that? Yes, of course. And everybody okay. references that. And once again, I, I love that but it wasn't top of mind. I mean, first of all, I love Jaws. I love Lifeboat. So I had my own references. Uh, But uh, I love the raft and it's the one outstanding thing from that creep show. Uh, And yeah, but I mean, I guess they are also sort of uh, pushing each other into the water type thing. 
Yeah, oh because, yeah, they're total bastards. The kids yeah, they're bastards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's because what I was going to say is as much as I like giant fish and other things, in the end, this script, which was also not my own, uh, seemed to be mostly about these resentful kids and how dysfunctional they are at solving problems, which is, as I always like to say, this is my metaphor of the uh, American government. Uh, just, you know, there's obvious problems. Climate change is one of my pet peeves. Uh, that we're not solving because we're just fighting with each other. And, oh, isn't yeah. that isn't that a good use of time? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting because it, the whole cast of the movie, like, there's not one person really to root for in this film. They're all kind of awful in their own. Zeke in particular is a is appalling to me. Like that character, I was like, fucking hate this guy, and he's the filmmaker. Like. And I I can't think that was a coincidence. Like, was there were you were you making a joke or something there by having like there's this one part in the movie where I was like, You're fucking kidding me, this kid, where the girl is bleeding out and she's dying and he's just filming her die. And I was like, This guy, man, is like Well, you know, it I call it <laughs> I consider it a satire, to be honest. Yeah, right. And um it's funny, if you watch the making of, you keep seeing me and the DP going like and it's because Facebook had just sort of started to get grip our world. And we were just making fun of this idea that everything is like, like, and furthermore, <laughs> if somebody dies, there's no mechanism on Facebook to say, oh, I'm sending you my sympathies. You have to say like, because all yeah. you're saying is that I'm sort of uh, advocating for this post. I consider it the end of civilization, quite honestly. And it's funny that me and my DP were basically making those jokes. So what I'm saying is that, yes, Zeke, it's not that he's a filmmaker, it's that he's a media fucker. And all yeah. he's doing is just recording stuff. There's no morality. He just wants to own the moment and post it or doing whatever. I mean, it's quite arcane. He's using a little, uh, whatever they're called. A um, wrist underwater camera. Yeah, camera. whatever that thing's called, which was its own technology at one point. Um, what the fuck are they called? Anyway, the little sports things. Um, yeah. And, but uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a true satire and I didn't actually hate the characters, but I thought they were all despicable and I loved the actors doing it. And it's one of those weird things. First of all, it was, it also came out when um, tweeting was just starting. And I remember I walked out of the theater and I was like, you know, that was kind of fun. That's, I didn't do so bad. Um, and suddenly there was this tweet saying it was worse than the room, uh, which was oh, no. to me, which to me was so perfect because the room was a reference literally that like three weeks old, that it had just come into prominence as the worst movie ever made. Right. And everybody was starting to buzz about it. So some little douchebag who wants to grow up and be a film critic thought that that was the most erudite thing they could say to put my movie down. Uh, and I just thought, welcome to the real world, Larry. This is how it's going to be. And I don't <laughs> yeah. think it's not how it's going to be. Uh, anyway, I loved making the film. and um, I like the film. I, I, I think it's, you know, again, a, re a reoccurring theme that we've talked about quite a bit in this conversation is the idea of like a story where you have this fish and you can't hate the fish. The fish is just, no. it's just a, a fish that wants to eat and wants to protect maybe it's turf, but you, these people 
if they could just be nice to each other for a second and act like friends might have gotten out of this thing. But they're too yeah. fucking self-involved to do that. And I think that's ties in perfectly thematically to what we've been talking about, you know, with the Romero films and these other things that, that yeah. uh, the horror genre does that well. You know, more I agree. Than- and a lot of people said uh, they're so close to the shore. This movie's unrealistic. And I'm like, well, actually, that looks like quite a long distance to me. If there's a man-eating fish. Yeah. And second of all, yeah. don't you think that might be the point? What I regret about some modern commentary, and I'm not defending myself or the movie. I can take a bad critique. But when, I, when it doesn't feel genuine, I get frustrated. I feel like people aren't reading movies anymore or don't feel the responsibility to read the film. In other words, I think it's fairly obvious that a relatively intelligent person is making this movie. And some of the things that make you uncomfortable, like you don't like the characters or why are they fighting might be the point. And then you have to say, so what is the, what is the point of this point? Are they doing it well, or am I just annoyed by this film? And then you can conclude, no, everybody's so unattractive that I can't watch this. That's a totally legit, but then they would be critiquing that I had failed in my mission. But the way that some of these critiques is like, I didn't even have a mission. They just are reacting (laughs) to it. So that's all I'm saying. I think it's an interesting problem of some film criticism now written by bloggers and whoever else. uh, Don't you think it has a lot to do too with people who are confusing that film criticism is the same as personal preference and opinion? It's like, well, yes. well, if this was if I was my movie, I would do. Well, it's not your fucking movie. It's this person's movie, and you have to yeah. take it in the confines of what they're what they were trying to do. That's Personal exactly preference right. is not the point of film criticism. That's right, and we we have touched on this earlier about you know what Ebert brought to the to the genre of film criticism, an invitation to analyze what the filmmaker was trying to do and how successful they were in their endeavor. That I think is is valuable um but as we also joked he brought on that thumbs up thumbs down so he's kind of a funny character historically he's sort of created that preference mechanism while yeah. being a very thoughtful writer at the same time so there you have it <laughs> yeah and it's the 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 fish in the movie i was so pleased that you chose to create a practical creature and not some sci-fi movie the weak fish because that would have then then I probably would have had a hard time because well, I, yeah, you, I wouldn't believed it. Yeah. And there's and something where, what would be the pleasure of it? I mean, the pleasure is that you can tell that this prop is working at about, you know, 82% <laughs> on a good day <laughs> and that you're like, oh, that's cool. Oh, they got that shot. That was kind of exciting or whatever. Yeah. You know, you feel like the kids are interacting with it. It's fun. It feels like it's there. And there's something to me, you know, I can have affection for the most ridiculous rubber creature in a movie if it's done a certain way, in a way that I that is fun. Uh, but bad CGI does, has no charm to it. There's nothing fun about bad CGI. Well, I think uh, the way I've always liked to speak about it, because I've been defending my bad monsters for so many years, what with <laughs> Wendigo. Wendigo was very disappointing, uh, at least the monster part. Anyway, uh, I I grew up, where the audience had to participate in the fantasy of the film. You know, they had to sort of bring their own forgiveness and affections to a monster. I mean, look at King Kong, meaning the original. It's clearly not a real living thing, and yet there's so much 
uh, emotion infused in the process of animating. And as I think I referenced earlier, you you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon, you can sort of see the zipper now and again, but what an incredibly beautiful creature. Uh, and, and on it goes, you know, I think some forgiveness and participation from the audience uh, is a good thing. Yeah. And whereas now with CGI, people just go, fake, fake, <laughs> yeah. nope. And they're just so spoiled uh, that they're yeah. not making any effort to to participate in the imagination of the filmmaker. Yeah. I'm going to fix my lighting. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What do we have now? Praise. Yes. There. <laughs> so... We're kind of coming full circle because Depraved to me was really interesting because your first feature is sort of a Frankenstein mad scientist story. And you came back to that thematically for Depraved, which, by the way, I loved. I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, wonderfully acted, really well written and well shot. It's it's great. Um, I hadn't seen it. I watched it for the first time oh, to cool. talk to you. And I was I was so pleased with it. I think it's yeah, it's great. Um, Thanks. And uh but it's it was it was fun to see that you've you've had this theme of sort of taking kind of iconic or or maybe less iconic but but mythological creatures, vampires, Frankenstein's monster, a mythological creature like the Wendigo, uh, you know your your monster fish movie. So this is you know we're we're back in Frankenstein territory. But is there an iconic monster that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? Well, the werewolf, of course, and that's up next. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> And, you know, when I made Habit, I was very tortured about promoting it as a vampire film. I wanted it to sneak up on the audience. Uh, and I still believe that would be the ideal way to watch it because the, the word vampire isn't even used for an hour and 20 minutes or something. But uh, ironically and somewhat purposefully, my new movie, Everybody Knows, is a werewolf film if they go is is their business. But it's called Blackout and it's a it's a werewolf story. And I suppose the question is how will I treat it? Because I have this agenda of trying to depict these classical creatures in a somewhat realistic contemporary environment. So that's what I was doing with Frankenstein. And, you know, I love that story and no telling wasn't really doing it for me. It is a Frankenstein story, but I still wanted to tell the Frankenstein tale through the eyes of the monster what would yeah. it be like no telling more about the, the doctor this yeah. one's more about the monster yeah. yeah and ironically no telling is really about science science and art how humanity responds to reality categorizing and and oppressing and and which is interesting because that made perfect sense in 1990 to challenge the status quo now I wouldn't have the same theme in a movie because I think science is under assault and we need to have some guardrails on the truth. I still think you can talk about the priorities of science, who's funding it, and you can still uncover some uh, bias in the scientific method, but I would not question the scientific method. Um, that's just because now we have to make sure that we have some thing in the world that we can trust. And I think science is that pure, pure science. Uh, then we can get into financing and other capitalist 
stuff that ruins yeah. everything. Uh, sorry, dude. Uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to tell the pure Frankenstein story from the point of view of a person who wakes up uh, in the in the monster's predicament. And that's what uh, Depraved set out to do. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, yet again, we're coming back to these themes of, of the monster is, is very sympathetic. And I really felt for the monster. And the other character that I thought was really sympathetic in the film was the, the young lady he meets at the bar, who's a wonderful actress. I'm not sure her name, but she was wonderful. Ass I love Timlin. She was, oh, that's who it is. Yeah, she's great. I love her in that scene. It was such a fun, one of my favorite scenes in the film is that scene. Oh, it's the best scene in the movie, yeah. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Um, But, uh, you know, you have these, these the, the, I, I don't think it's coincidence that the guys in this movie in particular are the ones who are so power hungry and attention crazed that they don't stop to think, you know, it's that Jurassic Park thing of, they're so preoccupied with what they can do. They don't stop to think about what they should do. And, yeah. and they're so irresponsible about it. Um, but, it, you know, the Polidori character, it was an interesting, Josh Leonard's great in the role. Um, I love there's that part where he, he, he sort of, he treats the, the Adam character. Like I, I was not sure. I was like, is Polidori supposed to be somewhat sexually fluid because he's very touchy with Adam or does he see him like the way a rich guy sees a racehorse? You know what I mean? Like it's a piece of property. Well, like everything, it's both. But he absolutely says cock and balls. Does he work? I can help you with that. I mean, he's very cheeky yeah. in front of his wife, too. I, yeah. I think we're talking about, I don't know what you, well, yeah, there's a whole psychology there I definitely am playing on. He touches Adam on the chest, on the breast, in, in a very lascivious way, inappropriate for any anyone, let alone it's kind of a father-son relationship. He's mm-hmm. just inappropriate all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so well, he grabs yes, his I, groin at one point. To, uh, oh, well, exactly. And says, yeah. oh, I see you do like the ladies. So he's a yeah. mess. And I yeah. don't mean he's a mess because he's fluid. I just mean he's abusing his uh, power. Yeah. Well, and he's it's an interesting character, too, because by the end of the piece, what's so great is he is the villain of the movie. By yeah. the end of the film, it's the monster's not the villain. The monster is the hero. And uh, absolutely. And and I've always seen Frankenstein as very much that kind of story. I, I think if you go back to the source material, it's in there as yeah. well that that the Dr. Frankenstein character is his hubris makes him not a heroic character. And the well, monster is the victim. I would like to say that that's what I did with the the uh, structure is I also made, I tried to make the doctor sympathetic because he's a broken man having gone and fought the wars in the Middle East and realizing he couldn't save all these kids and just feeling so desperate. So he has this brilliance that he brought back to the States and then Polidori as a manipulative capitalist pharmaceutical. Corrupts it, yeah. He corrupts that instinct and enables... um my Dr. Frankenstein to sort of do, as you say, the thing you shouldn't do, even though maybe you can or would like to. So that was the structure I was trying to do. But also in my effort to understand every character, you assume that Polidori is kind of this manipulative prick, but then at the end you realize that he is actually sort of desperate and is unloved by his wife, is in this uh, egregious relationship with his in-laws, is not respected, 
And so you realize the source of so much bad actors in the world is that they're being disrespected and disparaged. And probably also they're too lazy to have done the homework and become doctors themselves. You know, that's implied. That I also a, kind of, you know, looking at that character at the end too, when we see the relationship he has with his wife, I was like, do they have a marriage like this because this woman is married to a gay, a closeted gay man? Like that, that narrative definitely occurred to me as being a possibility for that character. I think so. I think that's in there. I always, uh, I try to deal with sexuality in all my films, in all of its uh, guises. And I think like we've discussed earlier on, I think a lot of problems are people not being able to express their full selves. And I think some villains are because they're closeted and bitter and then they become power hungry because they want to dominate in some way, even if they can't do it in the, uh, you know, in the, in the leather clubs or whatever. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, the implication is that he cruising. very much might be, he might be cruising. Yeah. Uh, he could be up to anything. He f- certainly feels very at home with the, uh, the stripper ladies and uh, who knows where he goes next, so to speak. So yeah, all of that is uh, of tremendous interest in me, uh, for me, because I think uh, these are the things that motivate and drive uh, a lot of people uh, in their quest for power and, and other things is sort of a displaced aggression, if you will, because they're not able to find solace in their lives or what have you. you Satisfy know. something. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's so, a, uh, there's a great part in the movie um, that made me laugh out loud where he's switching through different TV programs and I heard all these different recordings. Several of them, I'm pretty sure, were your voice. But there was one of them that cracked me up where it was an ad for something called Smoochie Cakes. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is a Smoochie Cake? <laughs> this is this whole fake ad for Smoochie yes. Cakes that I thought oh, was Oh, I'm very, very uh, touched you caught that. So I'll tell you what it is. When I was growing up in the 70s, there was this really funny ad. It was clearly homemade because it was uh, a local um, uh, ice cream store. And this guy came on and he seemed like he was drunk. He's like, this is Captain Carvel telling you to buy a pussy cake. No, what's it called? A cookie puss. Look it up, dude. It's on YouTube. Cookie puss, Captain Carvel. And you can't believe it. And you're like, you, well, no wonder we all felt insane in the seventies. This is what (laughs) the ads were, but you gotta get yourself a cookie puss for your birthday. Oh Um, my God. Captain (laughs) Carvel. And I know for a fact it's uh, on YouTube because when we made the movie, I was talking about Cookie Puss and everyone was like, Larry's <laughs> clearly gone off the deep end. And I'm He's like, lost no, it. <laughs> it's, it's Cookie Puss. So that's where Smoochie Cakes came from. <laughs> yes, we didn't want to violate his uh, copyright. So we came <laughs> up with Smoochie Cakes. <laughs> I love that there's a story behind it. I thought you might be like, I don't know. It's just MacGuffin stuff. We no, need something. Sir. No, no it detail too, overlooked. It was too funny to be totally <laughs> random. Well, yeah. I almost feel like it was worth making the movie that you noticed that. So finally, a, a careful <laughs> viewer. <laughs> well, it's, I'm curious because I thought Depraved was really um, felt like a, a very complete story, a very well-rounded, well-told film like was it a well-received film like i know beneath not so much you had a a bit of a topsy-turvy response for that but what about depraved oh yes i i got a great deal of love i mean the love doesn't translate to the numbers uh i i look i'm a niche 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 i'm a niche filmmaker uh 
it's because I'm interested in uh, other pursuits. I sometimes forget, oh, I'm supposed to be scaring people or I don't care or that's not, you know, so I get it. Uh, I, I understand. It's fine. But I'm always very appreciative uh, when I am celebrated by thoughtful critics and, of course, fans or whatever they might be, uh, viewers. So, yeah, no complaints from me, but it's, um, yeah, I don't have a, a huge corner on the market here. I'm not getting calls from Jason Bloom, for example. Um, <laughs> and yet I am doing what he's basically going to start doing. Um, he's going to make a Wolfman movie and he's did the Invisible Man and blah, blah, blah. So, Do you think that's just because it's so clear, though, from your body of work that you are kind of marching to the beat of your own drum and, and these guys would want a director that they could give marching orders to? Uh, you know, I honestly don't know. It's something that doesn't keep me up at night, but occasionally takes up a half hour of my day. Like, why yeah. is it? Why can't I get financed easier? Uh, why won't they call me? I clearly know. I knew that the Tom Cruise mummy movie was not the right move. They don't know how to make horror in Hollywood. Uh, they know how to make, you know, slasher movies and scream and so on. And Jason Bloom's done actually many good things for horror, but when trying to remake the universal movies, they don't understand that we don't want an adventure. We want something that really addresses dark themes. That's what Frankenstein is. Now they managed to sort of understand that with the invisible man. I have some complaints with that, uh, but at least, you know, it was about uh, spousal abuse. What am I calling that? Uh, you know, uh, domestic abuse, violence. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and, 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 and and so that, that was the right was move. different too, because the Invincible Man and in that feels dangerous. At least the the yes. the mummy and the cruise one felt. Well, that's what I mean. So I think yeah. Jason Bloom has at least understood. You know what? These should actually be horror movies, and so we're going to spend a little less, so we don't have to reach a blockbuster status. But actually, they're going to make plenty of money because we're going to do it the way he does stuff. And I approve of Jason Bloom, even though. I was competitive for many years just because I was like, wait, I was doing that. What is going on? If he does Fine. a Wendigo movie, you'll be really fucking pissed. Yeah. Well, Guillermo did a Wendigo movie and it wasn't as good as mine, to be honest. What one did, Ant which one did Antlers? Oh, yeah, yeah, directed. yeah. The, the Scott Derrickson movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's horror is, uh, thank you for that correction because it didn't sound quite right what you said. Yes, yeah, yeah. Scott Cooper. Um, yeah, horror is, is not easy and it's, you know, it's awkward when it tries to be mainstream. That's sort of a fundamental reality of the genre is it's supposed to be critiquing our society and providing un, uh, uncomfortable insight. And so to make blockbusters out of horror is already a little awkward and it's been done, but you know, it's a little weird. I mean, when I grew up, we had the Omen and that kind of thing, and that was cool. But most of the movies you've been referencing as far as the 80s being good for horror, those are all indie films. You know, oh, Return of the Living Dead, for example, is one of my favorite 80s horror well, films. Yeah, it's all of that stuff. Indie, yeah. Those are still weird little movies that happen to, you know, become iconic. But uh, Hollywood isn't really very good at horror. Now, I have a great fondness for Coppola's Dracula, but that's a pageant. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not, um, uh, it's not, well, it's horror in the sense of it's a dark story with, 
you know, but it has an epic quality. It's not. Oh, it's beautifully made too, right? What a what a wonderful movie to look at. Love that movie. That's another yeah. movie you can always watch, even though yep. some of it. It's one of the only movies I've I've wanted to re-edit because I just think uh, there's. <laughs> Well, poor Keanu so was not ready for that movie. He was not ready for his close-up. <laughs> no. It, I mean, because I feel so bad for him in that film. And I, I like Keanu Reeves a lot, but he's not right for that role. And yeah, and when they, you've got him working off of Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins, it makes it even that much harder. <laughs> like just, yeah, it's really a mess. But uh, anyway, still a great movie. Yes, it is. Great so I want to know about Blackout. We've talked about your your career we've gone through uh, the all those great films that you've made but you've got a new film coming out it's a werewolf movie what else can you tell me about it can you give me a bit of a detail about the plot or what, what can you talk about uh it's about a small upstate town where uh there's a series of murders and uh i guess the one thing i can say is that we are following the fellow who's got real problems <laughs> then he's trying to sort through them and it's kind of the last it's his last weekend or so he thinks he's trying to end it that's the only conclusion he can come to because he's so aware of what he's done and the harm that he's wreaked on this uh town Uh, it has a wonderful cast of many many unexpected people uh all in the movie very briefly i can tell you that werewolves what I, what I like to do is to sort of, when I say let's make a werewolf movie, I try to let the mythology of the creature speak to me, both thematically and then even structurally. And obviously you're dealing with uh, the full moon situation, so you're not going to tell a movie that takes place over a week. I mean, you might tell a movie that takes place over a month, but are you going to have a whole middle of your movie where the dude isn't, a werewolf. There's, I mean, I've seen it done. I've seen uh, Ty West has a werewolf uh, script. Uh, there are many ways to do it, but these are the fun puzzles when you step into uh, an existing iconic mythology. You've got to deal with that that framework. And then the other thing is that, uh, you know, I prefer the flat snout werewolf, the wolfman, basically, not so much the... Uh, much beloved howling and uh, the trends that started in the eighties when they figured out the makeup where they could create snout creatures. It goes up to dog soldiers, all beloved, beloved stuff, just not quite my vibe. So I'm back to uh, uh, just a makeup treatment and uh, the actor's physicality and performance. So I'm pleased with it. I, I love the werewolf and the monster squad, which I think is more what you're talking. It's about. like that. Yeah. yeah. And a lot yeah, of people reference great. that. It's funny people, especially, I guess you're a little younger than me who, who perk up and that was very seminal for them. But I would argue it's because it reminded them of, you know, their deep love of the Lon Chaney werewolf. Well, <laughs> you know, the monster you know. squad, the whole movie is a big love letter to the universal monster. Of course. Of course. Fred Decker was doing with that, with that movie. Yeah. I mean, the cast is, is amazing. Addison Tomlin, Barbara Crampton, Kevin Gorgon, Mark center. The list goes on and on. I, I love Mark. He was on the show. He's, he's, yeah. close. he's connected me with you and great guy. Um, But it's such a great cast. And you've worked with Barbara a few times, right? Yeah. As an actor, I was in Ted Gagan's film called we are still here. And uh, I was a fourth lead in her film. I love that movie, by the way. We Are Still Here is a great movie. Yeah. 
And then, of course, she and I. Yes. uh, House by the Cemetery. Yeah. Uh, And then um, Barbara and I were uh, married and Jacob's wife, which was fun. Travis Stevens, who produced We Are Still Here, then he went on to a directing career. And this is his second film, Jacob's Wife. And Barbara and I were pals. But she's also done our radio plays. And um, we hooked her up with Stuart Gordon in a wonderful uh, uh, radio play where she was reunited with the uh, the players from Stuart's uh, acting troupe that were in Reanimator. So Jeffrey that was Collins lovely. and such. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, she's just a pal. And I begged her to do this. Um, meaning I really said, Barbara, you got to do it. She said, of course I want to do it. And then I said, well, actually we now have to choose the date. So it's not enough to just <laughs> want to, we've got to make it happen. And she made it happen. She's the best. Well, there's a few, but everybody's in it very briefly. It's important to understand that's the nature of it. The restlessness that the werewolf story imposed upon me. And then I had to, who plays the werewolf in in the cast? His name is Alex Hurt. And he had been in my son's film called Foxhole. And, uh, he's a really wonderful right here. Foxhole. I haven't had a chance to watch yet. Oh, I hope you enjoy it. Well, Alex is outstanding. Everybody in, Jack's movie, my son's movie is outstanding. And I stole a lot of them for my film. Um, <laughs> one thing I wanted to do in essence was start advertising the history of glass. Eye picks. So my actors are from all kinds of different uh, productions over the years and they all start to appear. And I, I like to joke and I'm not kidding in the slightest that I'm building a monster verse because I'm going to make another film that will bring all of this together. All the recent, um, sort of the, the iconic monsters that I've dabbled with. Um, so we'll see how that unfolds. Oh, but, you got to uh, bring Doug back in his Wendigo persona. <laughs> Anything's <laughs> possible. Believe That'd me. be so great. I could see him with a, with a wolf man. Here's a carrot and an onion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, so well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm ex- when does the film come out? Do you have a rough idea? Good Lord, I haven't even sold it. I don't know. Oh, okay. I'm just cutting it. Okay. Almost but this done. year at some point then. I certainly hope so. I do too. I'm I'm excited to see it. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with a uh, with a werewolf. That's I'm pumped for that. Um, <laughs> but listen, this is I thank you so much, Larry, for taking so much time. I'm sorry, I, I I had to I had I had you here, and I had a lot I wanted to talk to you about. So thanks for being patient. But I I love your films. I've been a fan of your work for a very long time. It's a real treat for me to get some time to talk with you today. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. I feel I should have done more homework on you because you've obviously had your own storied career. That's the next interview. I'll turn <laughs> the camera around and we'll get to uh, get to the business of uh, of what you've been up to all this time. Well, whatever. I, anytime. Yeah. yeah that, we'll have a drink in our hands for that one. Though. You're going to need it. I look later. forward to it. Very good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, sir. And, and, and when... Uh, Blackout is done. Uh, Come back. We won't talk for quite as long, but I want to hear all about it when you can talk about it more. Yeah, let's do it. Fantastic. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Larry.
You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Hatton. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts. Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast. And Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like. But don't forget, the good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>